Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Joining me today in the studio is Adam Summer, and we're going to have sort of a catching up discussion on a variety of different astrological topics. So, hey, Adam, welcome. Chris, I love being in your studio. This is your first time in the studio because you've been living out of the U.S. Uh, I almost caught you last year for a little bit while you were in Boulder briefly during the pandemic, but uh, this is actually your first time. It's true. First time in the studio, last time you and I saw each other was in England. We went to the conference together. Oh my God, you're right. That was in June of 2019, so two and a half years ago. I was visiting the UK. I got you to go to your first astrology conference, which was that Astrological Association conference, which was a pretty good one. It was, yeah. Yeah. And I remember very clearly learning a ton about zodiacal releasing Mm. from your lecture, Okay, which um, is applicable to my life at the moment, but also, you know, studying ZR is um, what I think where I'm still at, because as you know, I use the dasas mainly. Yeah, your background, you had some background in Indian astrology, so a lot of that with dashas and time lords was probably a little familiar already. Right. All right. So yeah, so let's catch up. So uh, since I last, we last hung out, we did that trialogue episode with Eugenia. At my house. At your house, and that was even longer ago now. I don't know when that when that was. It was exactly. a snowy day in I th- 2018. Okay, I believe. I don't yeah. know what episode that was, but we released part of that as an episode of my ca- podcast and part of it as an episode of yours. But yeah. you were just getting ready to travel at that point, right? I did. I okay. went on. I went on what I called the weird road with right. a Y. Right. And <laughs> you didn't know what to expect at that point, but you actually no. found something that kept you in the UK. Basically, I think right. It's true. The UK wasn't even a part. Okay. Of the journey, really. Originally. I mean, the first step was a retreat that mm. I had done in Maui. Okay. So we went to Maui for, it was a lunar eclipse, and we did a, a really fun retreat there. And then pretty much straight from there, I hit the road visiting friends and family and like doing astrology circles, mm. pretty much from Colorado to Vermont. That was like, well, Montreal. We went to Montreal too. And then along the road, was an offering Amanda who you met because of the conference. Yeah, she was really cool. I just exchanged emails. She was the one that actually told me you might be back in town last month. Oh, yeah, that's the cat out of the bag. <laughs> I mean, I hope I'm not like saying anything out of, out of class here, no, out no. of school. Uh, what was her last name again? I forgot. Simon. Simon. Okay. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so she offered for me to come to Dartmoor mm-hmm. uh, for a month or so to do some writing and just to dream and just to be with that land that I'd never been to England or Dartmoor. And one of my favorite storytellers actually lives there and mm. like near Totnes. So I thought about it for a long while and said yes to the invitation. And by going there is, is basically where Angel Michael steps in and introduces Tansy mm. to me. And it happened pretty quickly. Um, yeah. And you, you fell in love basically. Pretty quickly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it wasn't a first sight thing. I think we both annoyed each other pretty good at the first moment. That's usually good. That's, yeah. 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 Um, but there was a, a long string of very interesting synchronicities that happened and we hung out again and it was, it was a quickening. Nice. Yeah. yeah. And so now you've been out there. You, um, last year, you actually flew back just to like do some business or something in Boulder and then you got stuck here during the pandemic. That was week one of the pandemic. Yeah. Like I flew out, it was like last week of February, I think in 2020. Mm. And then her flight was a week after mine. And so I arrived, got to the Airbnb 
And then things started getting very serious. And the day she was to fly was when the U.S. closed the borders. Wow. That, so, is, that is bad timing. Bad timing. Okay. And the, bo the borders are hardly open still. Yeah. I just, they've just recently hardly started to reopen for foreign travel, but that's even yeah. spotty. Um, so. Yeah. All right. Well, good times. Well, you're back now. You're doing some business and then you're going to go back to the U.K.? Yes. Okay. In January. Cool. Um, well, I wanted to talk about just a variety of topics of, you know, what we've been t doing, researching astrologically and other astrological topics today. Um, maybe we could, I don't know if we can transition to that point. I mean, one of the things I want to talk to you about that you're specialized specialist in is mythology. And that's something I've been wrestling with a little bit recently. What's the wrestle? Where, uh, where are you at in the wrestling mat? <laughs> so where I'm at is I've been doing this amazing series that I started kind of on a lark earlier this year when I did an episode on the astrology of the moon mm -hmm. with Israel Ajosi, who is actually the president of the Astrological Lodge of London. Um, and he, I wasn't, I wasn't sure about the episode, but he was sure that this was going to make for a great discussion and we should totally do it. And I went along for the ride and it turned out to be an amazing discussion to do a deep dive on a single planet and everything that it means in astrology across the past 2000 years and all the different ways that astrologers use and look at the moon. Mm -hmm. And that launched a whole series on each of the planets that I've done during the course of this year. And I've gotten all the way up through the outer planets through Uranus and Neptune to Pluto. And I'm running into an issue with Pluto that I'm struggling with a little bit, which is I don't think mythology was used as much to develop some of the significations of the older planets, even though we commonly assume that that was the case. Um, but often they had specific like theoretical and conceptual motivations for certain planetary significations in ancient astrology. And even when talking about Uranus, for example, there's this famous story um, about John Varley, like researching it empirically and seeing this transit that was coming up. Have you heard that story? No, please. He's 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 like researching it and he's gotten a good idea from repeated experiments with the planets and looking at it in transits that he's got a transit coming up that where Uranus is going to be very prominent on this specific day. And he's a little worried because he's gotten some hints that it may be unexpected and sometimes a little disruptive or like violent in some ways. So he shuts himself in his house this one day at the appointed hour. But then right at that moment, um, his house catches on fire. And he runs outside and he's so excited by this, um, what he's figured out. He thinks he's figured out the true meaning of Uranus that he sits there and he scribbles and writes down in his notes what Uranus means as his house like burns to the ground in the background. So it's like this funny story that Patrick Curry tells in A Confusion of Prophets. But to me, it points to more of an, like an empirical attempt to understand new celestial bodies rather than immediately jumping to the mythology. And I think that's like kind of reinforced a little bit by arguments like that Richard Tarnas makes, where he has argued for years that the myth of Prometheus is a much better myth mm -hmm. for what astrologers actually, how they actually treat Uranus than the Uranus myth is in some ways. And to me, that also suggests that there might be a disconnect sometimes with some of the newer, newer planetary bodies and their myth that we can't always take that for granted as the primary or sole starting point, but instead, it might be better to approach it more from an empirical context of like what does it actually do in charts or in transits and try to figure it out that way. But I feel that the mythological approach has been the primary approach for Pluto, which makes me a little bit uneasy. Plus, there's other stuff having to do with like evolutionary astrology or mm -hmm. other schools that have built up entirely based on Pluto that have almost 
created an entire approach based on on Pluto or the nodes and gone in some instances like a little far with it in making it the central factor of the entire system. So that's been a struggle for me then in doing an episode on Pluto and figuring out who to do it with. That's so that's the issue. You you have a, oh, I love a short, it. concise answer to all of those issues, that question. So I think there's two two ways that I may be qualified to talk about this. One of them related to Pluto is that my whole journey started in earnest with EA, as you know. Okay. And so some of the first astrology content that I was going really deep with was Jeff Green and Stephen Forrest, but specifically- I thought though that you started with Richard Tarnas. That was book. the first book. That was the first book? Yeah, okay. yeah. But I had never even casted my chart okay. after reading Cosmos and Psyche. Interesting. And which is really fascinating to me, by the way, because that's one of the most interesting the, that there are people that made their way into astrology through Tarnas's book just blows my mind because you just found it in like a bookstore or something, right? Well, some context okay. is that I, there was a philosophy class I took in college where we read Passion of the Western Mind. Okay. And I really appreciated that book because mm -hmm. it helped me, well, understand a lot of like Western philosophy and, and, and why we are where we are with it. Right. I think Rick did an amazing job with that book. Yeah. So it wasn't too long after when Cosmos and Psyche was released. And so I was in a bookstore at the time. I was in acupuncture school in Gainesville, Florida. And it was like on an end cap in the bookstore and it just jumped out because the cover's nice, but also I saw Rick's name there. Right, okay. I'm like, huh, like he has another book. Right. And I, I honestly didn't know it was an astrology book until I was about 60, 70 pages into it. Yeah, cool, because yeah. he doesn't mention the word astrology for the first like 60 pages. No. And so, and, and it gets categorized often in the philosophy section of bookstores. So like your story is not, un Ununique in that there's probably been like hundreds or maybe thousands of people that have accidentally found it that way. Yeah. 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 Sneaky. Yeah. It's an but, intellectual Trojan horse kind of. <laughs> right. Well, and I put that, I did a, my last episode was a top eight books for beginners. And I put that as one of my intermediate advanced like beginner astrology books because I think it's still a good, it's a good intro to astrology book mm -hmm. that also deals not just with the techniques and the concepts, but also with the philosophy of like, what does this mean about the cosmos and mm -hmm. how, what's the nature of the cosmos if something like this is true is, is like a question that he wrestles with and talks about. And really good basic descriptions of the planets in the intro right. too. Yeah. Very, very helpful with with a lot of the keywords and adjectives and stuff like this. So yeah, yeah, that was the first book. But when I started, you know, when I first had my chart, okay. for example, and um, I had a few readings, like I was living in Olympia, Washington at the time. Okay. And Which is the home of like evolutionary, almost Seattle is more the home of evolutionary. Yeah. Life. Yeah. Definitely a ton of astrology happening mm -hmm. in Olympia. And it was a very short chapter. I was there, but my friend Ari Moshe, uh, just, you know, was like read these books okay. and Pluto, Pluto two, um, of course, Steven, we were watching a lot of Maurice's videos. Like we had these VH VHS tapes mm -hmm. that we would watch of like Maurice chatting about Neptune or lecturing about Neptune. And Maurice Fernandez. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so that was when I really started to begin chart interpretation and my first clients as well was very much that model of Pluto being the soul's intent, signature of trauma. Mm. And then the nodes being the story that is built around that, you know? Mm -hmm. So a lot of like the first year or two of me doing astrology was baked around that philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, and then a lot has changed over the years. I mean, the podcast, I've talked to so many people on the podcast. I've, you know, studied Jyotish and studied many different types of astrology, like Hellenistic as well. Mm -hmm. And like over the years, I've just developed my own approach and my own kind of take 
on a lot of this stuff. And as we explored in seemingly our still popular node conversation, I right. still get emails about this. Do you? Do you? Uh, yeah, because yeah. that was, we were doing like a Q&A and the first question was about the nodes and then that yeah. launched us into two hours of two hour discussion about nodes. <laughs> no, because that's one of the most important yeah. episodes that's foundational for any subsequent episodes that I've done on the nodes because yeah. it outlined my fund, which ties into this, what we're talking about now. Mm -hmm. It led into or set up my fundamental issue with the nodes, which is that everybody thinks they have to do with about past and future lives today. And they think that that's always been a case and it's an inherited part of the tradition. But when I looked back, I could only find that doctrine going back a few decades into mm -hmm. like the 1930s, which left me then a struggle with how to reconcile that with you know, how much focus some schools give to the nodes today. Yep. Which is a similar issue with the Pluto issue. Yep, it is indeed. And a quick thing about that, because there's been a, like people do reach out about that podcast because okay. they like it and they enjoyed our conversation around it. But there's oh. also people that come at me okay. around it because of the past life part. I don't use past lives with the nodes okay. as a choice. It's not that I don't believe in past lives. I think there's a legitimacy to them. People like get a little heated mm. about that one. And I just want to say that for the record, okay, you, you know, just for the record. I didn't that, know you were getting heat. That's funny. I, it was I thought, like one of them was on your thread. I thought you were the one def more defending. I don't remember because you were the one that was at least representing more of that school. I was the much more antagonistic one of just being like, there's no previous associations with past lives right. in any traditions prior to the 20th century with the nodes. Well, I think we were in agreement on that point, mainly okay. because, you know, in Jyotish, like Rahu and Ketu are quite different. Right. Then the way that the EA school uses them. Yeah, and, and, and to whatever extent Jyotish is tied in with like karma and reincarnation and things like that, it's like the entire chart for the most right. part, and it's not specifically specified to the nodes. Yeah, yeah, which right. we can touch on because the nodes are, are one of my favorite elements of, of, of astrology, but... Although, hold on, you know what's funny about that though with the node thing is I did an episode and there's some modern contemporary Jyotish astrologers that have been influenced by the Western and they do. approach to the yeah. nodes and they've taken the past life thing and started applying it to the nodes, but now they're treating it as if that's always been the case in the Indian tradition when, when it's like not, as far as I can tell, both textually and in terms of talking to other Indian astrologers that don't have that conceptualization at all. So now it's getting a little muddled and tricky, even in terms of what the Indian tradition is. The migration of ideas, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> sorry. Which is always what happens. Like ideas go back and forth in the astrological tradition constantly from culture to culture and language to language and even practitioner to practitioner. Every time two astrologers get in the room, they start talking and comparing ideas. And those ideas have a tendency to rub off on each other in some way. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So let's 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 circle back to Pluto okay. and I'll say a few things here because Pluto being one of the planets, as Chiron is in this camp as well, that we haven't even been aware of its mm. existence for an entire orbit. For a full cycle. Right. And my whole stance on this mm. is that that assumes we don't know everything about this particular planet planet or archetype or story that is present within it, right? We don't know the the, the full story. Like we're what, halfway through mm. with Pluto about? Yeah. Because it was in Cancer, I think, when it was founded in the 30s. Okay. Is that right? I'm not, my ephemeris knowledge right now is like lacking. Um, Good, me too. You're right. I think so. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was in um, Leo in the 1940s. I know that because of the Pluto and Leo generation of astrologers. Yeah. So yeah, it would be in Cancer in the 1930s. Yeah. So you're right. We're only halfway through right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we're learning, and there's something really interesting about 
say Pluto, Hades, Lord of the Underworld, that there's like when you trace it back and actually Michael's book on Mesopotamian astrology helps in understanding this a little bit. Michael Bajan. Bajan. Okay. Yeah. Michael Bajan's book. Um, my lady to add <laughs> him <laughs> is with Nurgle, like the associations with Mars, like there's so many that are pretty much identical mm-hmm. to what we're talking about with Pluto, but there was no awareness of this Plutonic archetype back then. Mm-hmm. And then even there was more syncretism in Alexandria, for example, with Serapis, even the, the you know, it was a very, I think, um, prominent uh, God in Alexandria. And you have the trident, this, the triple headed, dog, you have all of these symbols that are there, but it's not Pluto. Mm. It's not Hades. It's something else. And so I think that's a really interesting point to kind of drag with us through this conversation is how these these energies, these gods change shape mm. throughout time. And so when we discover something like Pluto, which technically isn't a planet anymore, which is also very curious. Sure. Yeah. That's a whole <laughs> thing in terms of its yeah. demotion 10 or 15 years ago by mm-hmm. astronomers, but then the question of whether astronomers' classification of things is relevant for astrologers and whether that makes a difference or, or whether it does. Yeah. 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 And yeah, if we're, if we're mainly thinking with our left brain and we're trying to make logic sense of this little icy ball with a heart on it at the edge of the solar system, how right. it could possibly have an impact like it does. Mm-hmm. We might get tangled, but if you're just watching, if you've experienced a Pluto transit before, mm-hmm. you know, like it's a very real situation, just like with the U.S. going through a Pluto return. Right. It's clear, mm-hmm. <laughs> like we're in a platonic moment. And so we can explore that, but I just, I feel that there's a lot of watching and learning from it. You know, mm-hmm. and there is underworld themes. I mean, Pluto has a capacity of detoxifying and showing us the macabre, but it's all about power, mm-hmm. ultimately, right? It's like, how do we manage power? And if we don't do so properly, it will be exposed when there's certain transits, and that usually has disastrous consequences. Right. So, yeah. Um, I mean, I think I'm an outer planet fan. I use Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, even though I went to traditional astrology. Uh, you know, there's some people that go to traditional or go into Jyotish and in Indian astrology or what have you and, and stop using outer planets altogether or say that you shouldn't or, or that they can't be integrated into the system. And that was never my thing. I find that you can integrate the outer planets into the system. Um, Pluto's just one of the more tricky ones because of some of the additional things to have like accreted on top of it in terms of um, some of the mythology. Some of the um, karmic or past life stuff, and yeah, but the transits and some of those really close heart aspects and like a natal chart, they re- do really stand out. I so, think so. Uh, the the other issue that's an issue is the rulership thing and the uh, yeah. the modern rulerships of Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto versus traditional rulerships, and that's something that I also struggle with because I use more of the traditional rulership scheme of Mars ruling Scorpio, and I can see similarities between Pluto and Scorpio, but I want to be careful not to just assign Pluto to Scorpio and then dr- drag all of the significations of Scorpio and apply them to Pluto. I'd rather just see Pluto on its own and what does it signify as a celestial body without necessarily relying on that rulership scheme. Mm-hmm. How close is Pluto to your sun? Pretty close. My Pluto's at two Scorpio and my sun is at nine Scorpio. Yeah. I, I think one of the last full episodes of yours I listened to was with Stephen Forrest, mm. and he was kind of nudging at you about 
<laughs> the Scorpio themes, yeah. right? But the way I see it is, again, like to bring it back to power, right? Like, I mean, what you've done with this podcast, I mean, congratulations, by the way, on 100K mm -hmm. followers or watchers or whatever you say on YouTube. Yeah. It's amazing. And just the transformational effect mm -hmm. that you've had on astrology. I mean, I've been able to witness it because you, you and I have been doing this like alongside each other the whole way, you know? Right. And I would, I would, I would argue that that relates to Pluto, like being a Sun Pluto person. Hmm. And where is it transiting right now? Your twelfth? Yeah. Right. Currently, it would be a case for Maurice's twelfth house interpretation of like that's how you reach the masses, like hmm. power to the, you know, like with your message, with these conversations, like it's it's one of those moments. Mm -hmm. And we'll stop it at there. But I think it's a really positive case because a lot of people get really freaked out by Pluto and the rest of the malefics. But like when right. I think of Pluto and just for example, with the Pluto return for the US, there's a strange excitement that I get around it mm. because I understand that it's going to reveal where power is toxic and being manipulated. Mm -hmm. And it's going to make room for the regenerative growth to happen, mm. right? Like a leaf falls and what happens to it? You know, it's like that process where like the fungal kingdom takes over and like new life comes from it. It's a really beautiful thing that we often overlook. So yeah. um, you're doing it. Yeah, I mean, I'm doing doing what I can. It's been it's been a fun ride and it's been interesting to see both of our, our careers progress and doing the, the podcast. Um, I think this is going to turn into the Pluto episode, or that's, that's where it's, we're, we're going at this hey. point. We're doing it. This is just like the no, Nodes episode part two, uh, where I'm all, I'm open. Okay, all right. Well, sorry, Rick. If that's what's happening, yeah. Mr. Tarnas, I, I I do apologize. I did put out a request to see if Rick Tarnas would be interested in doing the episode. We'll still probably do it if he says yes. But let's follow this line of thought. Um, there can be two. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the master and the protege. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, that would be fitting since, yeah. like we said, that was your first astrology book. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Pluto, one of the things you said made me realize and remember and think that one of the things that's interesting is that, you know, so much of the dialogue in the 1970s and 80s and modern, what we call modern astrology, like late 20th century astrology, was about rejecting the concept of benefics and malefics um, as being too simplistic and, and, not necessarily true or what have you, and not treating Saturn and Mars as, as malefics necessarily anymore. But then it, what was interesting about that is when it comes to Pluto, like Pluto does in modern astrology ends up being the planet that does often still get this sort of malefic status in some sense functionally, where even a modern astrologer will see a Pluto astrologer will see a Pluto transit coming and be like, yeesh, like that's that's you got some rough, rough stuff coming up one way or another. And even though there are broader attempts to frame it in terms of like transformation and like change and other things like that, um, it still functionally often gets treated as one of the most difficult planets, let's say, in, in modern astrology. Do you feel like, is that true? Do you feel like that's an accurate statement? I think it's true. Okay. I think it's true. And I think the root of it has a lot to do with our relationship to impermanence, mm. to death, right? essentially. I think that all of our fears, all of our phobias, everything that we project onto the chart mm -hmm. is rooted in that. And <clears throat> great case for like Pluto wisdom actually comes from the Buddha. And if you know anything about Buddhism, right, you know that Siddhartha was born, his mother died, and it was a full moon that day, mm -hmm. supposedly a Scorpio full moon, and it's celebrated as Vasak. Not all the traditions it falls like this, but it's an interesting thing. So it assumes that Pl or the Buddha is a, Taurus sun, Scorpio full moon. Okay. Right. 
And then he experiences enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, under the same full moon, mm-hmm. and then dies under the same full moon. Whether true or not, the symbolism is interesting mm-hmm. in how it's celebrated in the springtime, you know? And so you have the trauma. It's a, it's a case for the EA crowd. You have trauma of birth, right? Scorpio moon, a fallen moon. Mother dies at birth. So there's, there's that. And then d- facing old age, sickness, and death, which is how the story goes. He has the Buddha, like, steps outside of the grounds of, of you know, the, the, the courtyard of where he grows up and then realizes there is old age, sickness, and death. And then goes out on this journey to try to get to the root of the suffering. Like, what is it? What is the root of the suffering? And then ultimately, you know, his own death. I think this is interesting and helpful in how we deal with Pluto. Hmm. Because, again, Pluto is the natural ruler or the modern ruler of Scorpio. Do you use which rulership scheme to use? I always look traditional first. Okay. And I mean, I'm not even passing any judgment. I'm just curious no, in no, case of like full disclosure. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Like I always look okay. traditional first, but then it's almost it's it's almost like extra information that we get to look at the modern ones too. So I'll look at both. Okay. And so the point of me telling that story in brief is that it gets us to the heart of that question of like, what is the root of our suffering? Mm. And the Buddha says it's in our attachment and our desire. And so if we're really attached to our stories, if we're really attached to our identity, if we're really attached to whatever the subject may be, it equates to suffering down the road. And mm-hmm. so it's not that we all are meant to be monks or nuns and just passing through this life like a like a waft of air, but having a really healthy relationship to impermanence. And that is the ultimate power because then you're really not afraid, mm-hmm. right? And so the meditation and the in the in the contemplation of impermanence and you know our desires and our attachments and all of this, I think is truly the root of doing Pluto work. And so when someone experiences a catastrophic Pluto transit, like the hit rate of Pluto on the descendant is pretty high as far as like ending relationships, Mm. right? Don't know what that percentage would be, but I've seen enough cases to where it ends a lot of relationships. Why? And I, I would say part of the answer to that question is there's secrets between them. Everything is not revealed. There's attachment to certain stories that they both may have or whatever it is. There's something occurring within the power dynamics between two people. Mm. And what Pluto wants is to expose all of that so there's transparency. And then ultimately, I think it starts spinning the transformation. Mm. Right. Yeah, impermanence. I mean, that's a struggle though, because any living entity's primary, one of its overriding things is self-preservation. And the, yeah. and the drive for self-preservation is part of why any of us like stays alive, or or why, for example, like suicide is viewed as not the answer, or not an ideal thing to opt for. Um, which is one of the things when I think about this idea of impermanence and things like that, and having a really intense Pluto transit or something like that, and having something completely um, the, the destruction of something or the death of something becoming very real um yeah it's hard then to it's it's sometimes easier to you know accept certain things philosophically or abstractly but when it comes to actually living it that's a sometimes a different matter yeah and what of living it like you're a pluto sun person i'm a pluto moon Mm -hmm. person and so in some sense you would assume 
we're quite used to the energies of mm -hmm. what we're talking about. And I'm only curious because being a Pluto Sun person, it's at the top of your chart too, right? Like I'm yeah. in heaven. It's in my well, it's in my tenth whole sign house. It's in my ninth or possibly eighth house by quadrant, depending on what quadrant system you're using. For you, like how comfortable do you feel with these themes? Not necessarily naming it as Pluto, but some of these themes that we're talking about. Like, I mean, my core, you know, psychological wound early on was I have a Sun Pluto conjunction in Scorpio, and my father died when I was five when I was having some mm. of those heavy transits. Because my one of the lovely things about my stellium is Pluto's is at two, so it's the earliest planet of my Scorpio stellium. So mm -hmm. that means when I was first born, my initial like chapters of life were just Pluto grinding over my Sun and Saturn and squaring my ascendant and hitting Mercury and squaring my Moon for like the first decade of my life. So so when Pluto was transiting your son is when you lost your father. It was somewhere Close. in between like, yeah, Sun and Saturn, basically. When Pluto was on my moon, that's when, well, actually, is that true? Saturn was definitely transiting my son when I lost, lost my dad. Mm, okay. And I was 17. Um, yeah. So, okay. Like, you know, you see that story and like, I think trauma is like that. And it's a case for the EA folks. Again, like there is something about the trauma signatures with Pluto in the chart, whether it's the soul's intent. How is it, that a case for the EA people or what were, what were you thinking? Oh, you sorry. Think? Well, that seems, well, it's kind of like the, um, the thesis with Pluto is like where you see it in the chart. It's like, that's where the soul intent is, the polarity point in that story that it opens up. But there's an emotional trauma that exists around wherever Pluto is at. Okay. In the chart. And so with the story that you just shared, that counts, right? Like, I mean, symbol of that is the sun and Pluto gets close to it. And then there's the loss of that. Yeah. I mean, I guess where I struggle with it is like, I remember going to like a Norwalk and seeing a list circulating. It was like a handout, but it was like the, the 10 commandments or like rules of evolutionary astrology. And I know there's different evolutionary astrology schools. There's the Jeff Green school and there's the Stephen Forrest school. And then different subsets based on students, but yeah. the Jeff school seems to really focus on Pluto and it's like number one rule was like Pluto is the soul and it just kept, mm -hmm. it repeated that like three or four times. It was like mm -hmm. Pluto is the soul, Pluto is the soul. And I can't get on board with that like, like symbolically from an astrological standpoint or from any other standpoint. And it comes off to me like a tendency in the late 20th century to that all, all traditions have, but sometimes to get a new point and to like fetishize it, to like overblow yeah. a single point, whether it's Pluto, whether it's the nodes, whether it's the part of fortune, whether it's a certain asteroid mm -hmm. or whatever. Like every astrologer or tradition, no matter the time period, like has that possibility to overfocus on like a certain point. And I, I can't help but feel like that's what happened in some of the schools in the late 20th century with Pluto, even though it is absolutely an important planet that does stuff, things. It does stuff. It does stuff. I will say that. That's a really great point. It's one of the reasons why I uh, transitioned from using Pluto in that kind of a way. And everything has soul. Pluto, there's soul to, to, to Pluto. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, soul descends. There's, there's weight, there's quality, there's substance to soul. And one of the most influential minds of the past year for me has been Thomas More. Are you familiar with him? Mm, a little bit. So he wrote a book, when, I think it was his first book called Planets Within, and it's about Marsilio Ficino's astrology, his natural magic. Okay. And he talks a lot about soul. Mm. And the way, I mean, Thomas More, all of his books are about 
soul. Uh-huh. And the way in which he writes about it, the way he talks about it, it's just exquisite. And this book, when I was reading it, I was in uh, Madeira at the time. I got stuck there during the pandemic. And I was slowly, slowly going through this book, just savoring it because it was so important mm-hmm. about going through the seven traditional planets, Ficino's take on them and how he used them. And, and then just this commentary by Thomas More. And so I would say I'm more resonant with that school mm-hmm. than just yeah isolating okay soul is only this soul is everything soul is the entire chart but also there's different qualities to soul we grow soul in our dynamic relationship to all of these gods goddesses stories however you want to see them that's yeah. what i feel well well because facino is interesting because he is the also then drawing and is the cross waypoint between the actual Western esoteric tradition of both the Platonic tradition as well as the Hermetic tradition. Yeah. Because Ficino was the translator of both Plato's works as well as the Corpus Hermeticum. So it's like there you will would find like what the Western tradition's treatment of things like soul actually is when it comes to astrology yeah. versus more more recently sort of invented stuff from more recently discovered planets. I want to share something about my experience of going deep with Ficino and Bruno and a lot of these Renaissance minds. Mm -hmm. And what it did is give me a greater appreciation for you and a lot of your colleagues that do a lot of these translation projects and, you know, work with the traditional ideas. Because Mm -hmm. I think for a lot of us, like when we get into astrology, it's like, well, what do we encounter? It's like, first these days we encounter these podcasts and then we read a few books and Mm -hmm. then we have a certain idea of what things are. But like when I got into it again, it was like the EA stuff, a lot of the psychological astrology, Liz Green and um, Stephen Arroyo and all these right. wonderful books. But like we all start there. The, yeah. Well, a there's way. a funny thing, the controversy right now, because I just released a book list. It was like top eight book beginner books for astrologers, for new mm-hmm. astrologers. But it's more like newer books that have been written in the past decade. And I got a lot of comments I got really annoyed about that were like, what, no Liz Green? Like no Stephen Arroyo, no Rob Hand. And I was like, those books are written in the 1970s and they're kind of dated at this point. And even though that is where I started and that's where most people started because the same collection of like a handful of astrology books is what everybody 20 or 30 years ago read when they first got into astrology, some of those ideas are no longer current today. That doesn't make them bad or completely useless, but they're not necessarily where I would tell somebody who's starting from square one to start today. And what um, is your number one book that you tell people to read? There's this, no, <laughs> no <I'm> well, <laughs> there's a book by Carol T- Taylor called Astrology Using the Wisdom of the Stars in Your Everyday Life. And Carol Taylor um, is an astrologer from the UK and mm-hmm. she studied with, like, the I think, the, not the London School, but the Faculty of Astrological Studies and taught there. And she wrote this amazing book that I just found in like a Barnes and Noble a few years ago, but it's extremely well illustrated, it's comprehensive, it's cheap. Uh, it's affordable to buy, and it's just a really good and readable beginner book. So that, Chenny Nicholas's book, Astrology Were Born for This, which focuses on the sun, moon, and rising, hmm. and also pairs well with her app, but synthesizes modern and traditional astrology, but also has really good sensibilities for you know, modern issues dealing with like like gender, sexual orientation, things like that, that were not at all where they are today in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Tarnas's book. There's a, there's a few other books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you still include Michael's? Michael who? Agent again. Because um, you had told me you recommended your students to read that one. Yeah, it's not on my top 
um, eight lists because it's more of a history book on Mesopotamian astrology. I forget what the new title was. What was the first title? Uh, I've never seen the first uh, print, but the okay. title now is The Astrology of Ancient Mesopotamia. Yeah. I mean, that's an amazing book. That's one of my top two books for Mesopotamian astrology. It's like that and another book titled Mesopotamian Astrology yeah. by Gula Kosh Weston Holtz. I forget if I'm pronouncing her last name, but those aren't like top eight brand new astrologer books for me because yeah, they don't help you to read charts or anything. Yeah, it doesn't tell you yeah. anything about techniques. It is top eight like history books mm -hmm. if that was a separate list, but mm -hmm. in terms of, like new astrologers. So it's like that. There's a traditional book by Helena Avlar and Luis Ribeiro on the heavenly spheres. Mm -hmm. um, Turnus's book. I did put my book on the list because it's the only hey, book. It's a good one. <laughs> it's the only book that gives an overview of like the original tradition of Western astrology from 2000 years ago. So it's like somebody else wants to write that book and it's better than mine. I'll put that book on the list. But until that time, I have the, I feel like I have the, you know, some, mm -hmm. right, some obligation to include it. Uh, James Holden's book, A History of Horoscopic Astrology. And then finally, yep. my last book is The Ephemeris. An actual ephemeris. An ephemeris, yeah. like a print ephemeris, especially the, the 1950 to 2050. So you can flip through the pages and see any day, any year. You can read, literally read the past or the future in one book. I mean, it's core. Good thing to get really early on in your studies, I think. It's a good list. So those are my recommendations, but some people were like, you know, where's this in this book? Because 20 years ago when I started or when you started, those books would have been like the top in the top eight list. There would have been some Liz Green, some Rob Hand, or some Stephen Arroyo. But the problem is like Planets in Transit, which is written in the 1970s, is a good book, but it doesn't actually reflect Hand's practice today because he's grown and changed a lot as an astrologer. And he's writing a revised version of that book where when it's out, I would probably recommend it. But as it is now, like that book is almost 50 years old and doesn't even re re reflect the author's current practice. So it's like, why? Put that on a core list today necessarily. That's my that's my take at least. Valid. Okay. How did we get there? We, I was just thinking where were we? Okay. Ah, I mean, we were talking about Pluto in some respects, and Pluto, we were EA. Um, soul is soul. where you know okay. isolating something to one planet, which it, also relates to the nodes being the story. And right? it, but it said that you started saying that it gives you respect for those that are going back and looking at the older tradition. Yes, with Ficino and stuff. And right. so I just had this, it, it was an amazing feeling of realizing, and it's also like as I moved through all of Michael's books as well, like realizing that like the last time you and I, well, when we did the nodes podcast, I remember like joking to you about like how you have this knack for history and you, t you tend to remember everything, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the reason why I've always failed at that is because I've never been truly interested mm. in history, but I now am. Yeah. And I mean, it gives you a reason, or astrology gives you a reason to be interested in the history. Exactly. Right. It, 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 I now I am, and I think you definitely has, have been helpful along that Nicampian, uh, Michael's books, and, and, and a few others. And it's like, wow, like there's this whole untold history. Like you mentioned Ficino translating the Hermetica. Mm -hmm. Like that was a seminal moment in the history of the world right. where he was working on the works of Plato for, did, um, was it Cosmo? Cosmo Dimnity, yeah, I think it was. Yeah. And he pushed that aside right. to translate the Hermetica before he died. Yeah. That's how important that was. Yeah, when it well, showed they, up because they thought the Hermetic was older. Although, ironically, yeah. 
Plato is older than the Hermetica, but right. nonetheless, it gives you an idea of like how much emphasis was placed on those Hermetic texts. Yeah. yeah. And then when you read the Hermetic and you understand the ideas that are in there, it's like, what happened? Well, the Enlightenment. Mm. Yeah, like, there's a lot that has happened between then and now. But what excites me about our time, Chris, is I do think we're living in a Plutonic moment. I think we're living in a Renaissance of sorts. You're definitely a part of it. I think all of us are a part of it. We're trying to recover all of these old ideas and breathe new life into them. And I think the the role I've plopped myself into is trying to do so with story, mm. story and language. And it's kind of how I use astrology as well as helping people find themselves in their story. Right. And 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 clearly understand like there's two threads here. There's fate and destiny. And when you braid them and see how that works, and a chart is very helpful in, in doing so. There's a magnificent thing that happens to the person, like when they're able to like liberate from the kind of heaviness of fate, right? And I think a lot of people get that wrong idea when it comes to prediction and, and working with astrology is that like, right. well, if I know this, well, it's going to limit my freedom or it's going to make me suffer more or whatever it might be. But mm. there's actually, in my opinion, a liberating effect that it has when the acceptance of fate or the acceptance of fate which is definitely something i've changed my mind on in the okay. 13 years of studying astrology right hugely um and i think a lot of us do like because of how we grow up in the west and you know i think we're like in the free will camp for the most part and it's not to say there is no free will but like when you study astrology especially these time lord systems right i mean i've never seen anything like it like, yeah. like just the Vimshotri Dasa is the most mind-blowing thing I've ever used in my life. Mm. Like it's so crazy how it works and how can it work? Or um, how about this one? Are you familiar with the Nadi astrologers or the Indian palm leaf readers? A little bit, yeah, Nadi leaves. Have you ever had a reading? No. I mean, the premise, could you, just for those not familiar with it, briefly state it's the premises that people wrote down these predictions on like leaves centuries ago that were then wrapped up and then you you get a reading and it somehow says something about your life today. <clears throat> so I had first become aware of this studying Jyotish and okay. the stories are just like mind blowing of how, so this is the only information they have, by the way, your thumbprint and whether you're a male or a female. Mm. That's it. And then by birth. And then right. what happens? They pull out like a wrapped up leaf. Am I actually re recalling that? So they now? have to search for your leaves. Okay. So the idea, especially, um, so I had a, a guy on my podcast back in June named Dr. Q, and he basically acts as a facilitator to help Westerners experience true naughty astrology. Like there's a lot of scammers online yeah. these days. Mm -hmm. And so he, and down in Tamil Nadu, he has met some legitimate uh, palm leaf readers. And he's basically made a business of helping people experience this, right? So anyway, my point here is about fate. So okay. thumbprint, know you're male or female and they go out searching now what does that look like are they like on a bicycle and covid times like searching for your leaves like they have to find them and sometimes they don't find them hmm. uh they found my leaves it took two months for them to find my leaves and there was two different uh pamphlets or like they're bundles is what they call them there's okay. 108 palm leaves in each bundle and the way the reading starts is they ask you questions and so some just to give you an example some of the questions they asked me were like did your father die when you were 17. Hmm. Did your mother die at the beginning of this year? Do you have a brother? Is he younger? You don't have much of a connection to your... Like, just asking me questions straight from these leaves. Mm -hmm. 
all they had was my thumbprint, right? And then once, actually, they 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 did that with the first bundle, and all the questions were a bit mind blowing, right? And there was one question that was off, and they're like, "Up, oh, not your bundle." And then we had to start over mm. with the next bundle, and it was like a similar series of questions, and then it was officially my bundle, and then the reading started, and then they basically tell you like where you're at and where you're going, and like the idea of like when things start to putter out, and and what you can do to remedy it, certain pujas, mantras, things like this that you can you can do to help remediate it. Mm. So I've now experienced Nadi astrology. I've studied Vedic astrology, Hellenistic astrology, and been practicing astrology for 12 years, a Jupiter cycle. Mm -hmm. And fate, isn't, there's no doubt in my mind about that etching within the soul. Like it's there, mm -hmm. you know, the Mori or the weird sisters who've threaded our, our, our way into this world. It's real. I know that much. Yeah. But then destiny is what becomes most interesting to me because I don't think they're the same thing. Okay. They're they're together, but that's a really interesting point, though. Before you get there, of destiny of the different topic. Before we go there, sure. of um, fate, that's one of the biggest things, and that was why I titled my book why I did, and because I think that was my biggest thesis of the book is that somebody in the first century BCE developed a system for studying fate, and that was astrology, and that astrology was the access point to understand your fate and understand what you was predetermined or predestined. And the purpose of doing that was to learn what you had to accept. And this system became wildly popular in the first and second and third centuries BCE. But then it became so popular that this other little cult that was a little minor cult at the time, like um, sprouted up and grew as a counterbalance to it until it eventually eclipsed astrology because it provided an alternative. And that counterbalancing alternative was Christianity because said, if you believe in this guy, this Jesus dude uh, from the first century, um, he, you, you were free of fate. Like You're no longer subject to fate, and your birth okay. chart no longer will determine your destiny. And you know that's a pretty appealing proposition if you don't like the cards that have been dealt to you, if you don't like your fate and you don't want to accept that to believe that there's a way out of it. And then 2,000 years later, our entire Western civilization has been built around these ideas of the rejection of fate and and the triumph of free will and things like that, which is one of the reasons why I think studying astrology and being exposed to true, especially ancient astrology in whatever form, is such a shock initially because it does show you very starkly that there is some concept of fate that exists out there that is real, and um, there's something a little unsettling about that. Yeah. The way you just framed that, I, I've never heard it quite said that way. But with with the cult and the takeover, I and, mean, and it's the easy way out too. It's like you don't really have to deal with the whole fate and the work that it entails. Yeah, the yeah. especially if all the astrologers at the time, if societally, just think about it, because astrology became so popular and Stoicism was so popular at the time, and they That's they right. really went well together with astrology where all the astrologers believe the purpose is to determine your fate so you know what you have to accept and you know that that went in a different way in the vedic tradition which is still also very faded and tied in with karma and reincarnation although they started emphasizing a lot more at least especially in modern times ideas of remediation and being able to change your fate or certain things to a certain extent so things are a little bit different there at least today but um, yeah, it's it's one of the core 
things that's then so fascinating to me that nobody recognizes about the rise of Christianity is why it became so popular, why it came to dominate the Roman Empire as rapidly as it did, because we've all just been living in the aftermath of that where we take for granted much of its philosophy even if we don't identify as Christians because it's so ingrained in Western society. Massively. Yeah. I had a good question for you around that. What was it? Um, <clears throat> well, I suppose the natural magic. So, you know, Pacino, Bruno, like they were Christian. They were priests, mm -hmm. actually. And when they got bit by the hermetic bug and started studying this stuff, there, there's, especially with the natural magic angle of things, a way of working with fate and destiny in a, in a very conscious sense. And it's something you learn going back and studying the astrology of ancient Mesopotamia is they were doing that too. Right. Right. And like we know very little, for instance, of Haran, but whatever was going on there. Yeah. I'm very interested in. And yes. do you have any suggestions on books? This is something I did well, I email it to you because um, I was trying to find books of Michael's library and I couldn't. There's well, not much there. I mean, honestly, the main thing that probably came out of Haran or is a product of the intersection of like Mesopotamian and, and Hellenistic and Greco-Roman and a little bit of Indian occult traditions, one of the primary outgrowths of that that we see a few centuries later is the Picatrix, yep. Book of Astrological Magic. Um, right there. Yeah. Picatrix Latin version. I'm waiting for the new Arabic translation to come out sometime here pretty soon. You read Arabic? I don't, but oh. <laughs> it's going to be translated into English in addition yeah. to, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, so the magical traditions you were talking about, Ficino. Yeah, and just because you had mentioned the Vedic side of it, and and just I, I guess my point around it is how this this oh yeah cult of Christianity or you know the, the, our worldview that it's it, we've lost that and it's become what's a good good way like almost like cartoonish or archetypal right like when we think of people that are into magic or witches or people that talk about moons and all of this like our culture right. sees it that way and it's been such a successful campaign over the last 2000 years to do this to, when, to eradicate that completely eradicate it when a lot of the evidence around christ is that he was quite into astrology mm, most okay. were around that time yeah. yeah. I mean, certainly in the Gospel of Matthew, that's a t-shirt. Somebody just reminded me I meant to make t-shirts. I'm going to do it this time of like, uh, the Magi were astrologers. Like, is, Important. Yeah. It's you know, a little, <laughs> little minor story, like right at the beginning of the Bible about like the astrologers that show up at the birth of Christ because yeah. there's a celestial portent that indicates that the Messiah has been born. Yeah. It's a little, a little important. Uh, Later theologians, of course, had to downplay that and like pretend that wasn't what it obviously is because astrology and Christianity came to have tension. But yeah, um, but it's interesting you mentioned Mesopotamian. The fact that Mesopotamians had propitiation rituals all the way back. One to of them, Ur and Eric. Yeah, well, one of them that's fascinating to me that I was meant to do an episode on because I've been thinking about this a lot lately about what you can do about things that are faded and the extent to which things are predetermined and if there's any room for negotiability is one of the things they had was the substitute king ritual mm -hmm. where it's With like eclipses yeah perfect time eclipse well what was funny is we just had one did you watch the lunar eclipse that just occurred in taurus a few nights ago i saw a glimpse i was tired okay it happened late yeah i was yeah. almost wasn't going to do it and then i uh just sucked it up and like dragged myself out and watched from a roof and of course like right before it culminated at like 2 a.m i like stuck in there 
And then a cloud came by and like covered it up. So I didn't get to see the red, the red part, but I did take a bunch of pictures all the way up until right before. Nice. Um, so the next day, what was really funny, did you see in the news that like Biden went in uh, for medical procedure and for like a colonoscopy? TMI. And, yeah. Yeah. A little bit of too much information, but, um, yeah, but, but he First, went under anesthesia. And so, um, they put Kamala Harris in charge mm -hmm. for who briefly then was like the acting president for a few hours the day after this eclipse. And it just made me think of like the substitute king ritual a little bit and how that's kind of a similar thing where if the yeah. Mesopotamian astrologers saw a bad portent for the king coming in the next week or whatever, they would take like some peasant or some farmer and like make him king for a week. So that whatever the bad indication would happen to them, and then once it was over, they would reinstall the normal king. And there's not a lot of evidence what they would do with that poor chap. But yeah, uh, I don't like talking game. about that part. That's a little. I, I mean, I, I you know, there's some versions yeah. where I think they they kill him in order Probably. to fulfill the actual whatever they thought was going to happen. I'm not sure if that always happened. I've been meaning to find a Mesopotamian scholar that can actually tell Help me. Help us. Yeah, because there was human sacrifice. Yeah, in those cultures, I do think, and I mean, in some ways, then that could be the shadow side of astrology, or at least some of those practices One back then. Is that that's not yeah. very, that's not very cool, <laughs> um, but it did make me wonder about the appropriateness of something like that today. Like, because one of the things I struggle with even today as an astrologer of twenty years is the more advanced I get, sometimes knowing. The worst case scenarios and seeing a bad transit coming myself in the future, um, I haven't developed the enlightenment of a stoic sage where I'm just like completely cool with whatever happens at this point. Mm. If it's the worst case scenario, and sometimes that does still worry or concern me, and it makes me sometimes think about the Mesopotamian astrologers. And if you're having an extremely bad transit, if you can channel it by grabbing the energy by the horns and then doing something with it proactively. And if sometimes that does work, because I think all astrologers have the idea that sometimes you can do that, but I'm often curious to what extent you can versus sometimes there's something that just comes out of left field that you don't have any control over. So it's not a matter of like, well, if I just do this, then the energy will go away. Mm -hmm. It's like there's already something set in motion that was headed towards you long before you started to do anything, and it's going to happen to coincide with your path that day no matter what you do. But there's still a question sometimes of if that model of astrology might still be true to some extent. What do you think? We can use an example that was current. So the Mars-Saturn square, you seemed yeah. a little concerned about that? I was a little concerned. We were, we were worried about that for me personally. I did see a lot of people um, Use that time in order to like grind through stuff that they didn't want to do, but they they sort of had to do. And for me, I spent a lot of it just like catching up on four thousand like unread emails that I'd been putting off for months, and it just felt oh. overwhelming because I get so many messages due to stuff and just can't deal with it. But I finally sat down for a month and just like forced myself to do a bunch of that for a long time. No assistant. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Even with an assistant, though, it's like there's yeah. some things that you can't have somebody else answer, and that's one of the things that's annoying. Yeah, yeah, I tried that once. Yeah, um, yeah, and I, I think we we meet it. Like, I, I, like, do you watch the new Dune? I did. It was good, but I, I, I was, that was my first exposure to the whole Dune universe, and oh. I didn't, I didn't realize how much like Star Wars it just just like ripped off Dune. 
so that some pieces of it were it like, did come first yeah i just interviewed um an astrologer yesterday whose name i'm blanking out uh but he asked frank herbert walker his birth time and actually like asked him at one he point got it he got it and he frank herbert walker said that he his wife actually was a practicing astrologer at one point which is wow. an interesting anecdote um ray grassi that's who i interviewed oh, okay okay yeah wonderful wonderful world of dune yeah and the idea the quote that people use kind of like may the force be with you is fear is the mind killer mm. right right and that's a very potent mantra to right. keep in all of our minds it, it relates to what we're talking about with pluto and right. Scorpio as well. And I'll be honest, there's no transit that has ever been coming for me that I've been worried about. Never? Mm -mm. No. Like no, I have no, a lot of no concerning da ones. Dasha period, no secondary progression. <clears throat> what about like no. a Rahu? I don't know. I'm in Saturn Rahu at the moment. Okay. I think that freaked me out a little bit. But no, and I, from the beginning, Chris, like my relationship to a lot of this astrology has been like a deep curiosity mm -hmm. and a knowing that, like, well, like whatever's coming is coming. And, you know, great spirit is working through all of this. And so mm -hmm. like whatever's coming, I just have to greet it and move with it in the best way possible. Yeah. And so Mars square Saturn, I forget exactly what it was for me, but I remember it like vaguely related to kind of, yeah, there, there was just like, how did I get busy again? There was two things that happened. It's like, I'm trying not to be busy these days, like with work, I'm really trying to like, have as much time as possible to work on this book that I'm writing, right? Right. It's hard. So somehow, I think it's just being back for a moment. Yeah. And like everyone just picks up that I'm here. And, right. And they're like, I was wanting to do it. Like me, yeah. like dragging you out to do a two hour podcast randomly. Hey, but I want to see everyone. I mean, that's the thing. And so it's like, okay. But then there was something on top of it, you know, with the Mars Saturn that like I was already feeling a little maxed. And right. then something on top of it yeah. happened. And I'm like, oh my dear. It, it's oh, tricky though, because the, the Mars Saturn didn't hit my chart closely. And so maybe I experienced just the general weather of that week in a non local sense is like answering emails and doing stuff I didn't want to do but there were some people that did where the degrees of their you know natal chart lined up in a certain way mm -hmm. where there was some like tragic stuff that happened there was like the the Travis Scott concert that's true and you know there's like a father who like takes his like nine-year-old son to the concert and has him on his shoulders and then they get he gets knocked over and his son gets trampled and like you know dies from internal injuries so you know, that's a worst case scenario type transit of like extreme tragedy and, and loss and, um, you know, extreme stuff that for some people, you know, can be an experience of a worst case scenario of certain types of transits. Yeah. 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 And there's certain things just to avoid, like I wrote about it the day before it happened, of, you know, like avoid hanging out with snakes, poisonous insects, you know, hippopotamuses, keep away from them, like extreme-minded folks, like just be sure. be smart. Right, extreme-minded hippopotamuses, yeah. you put them all together. Who that, ride motorcycles. Right, that's worst-case right? I mean, scenario. Yeah, black angels. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I don't say that like to be pompous, that I don't freak out about it, but it's part of the work I do with people is try to help them with like, we don't know enough to worry. It's like, we might see that this transit is coming and it might hit something that's very, very sensitive mm -hmm. in your chart. But do we really know? 
like yeah. exactly how it's going to come. But most importantly, like I think as a practicing astrologer, is we need to help strengthen our clients and help them, you know, be strong in body, mind, and spirit, so they they can face any of these transits when they come. But that's hard because nobody, different people have different different astrologers have different answers about what helping, what would help. Yeah, like you know, so for example, when you're giving that advice of to avoid things. Like, do you think that could change it or that could help? Um, you know, something help somebody avoid something that might have happened otherwise. Well, I don't think there's ever a good day to hang out with a hippo, uh, right. right? Like, yeah. I think it's just bad form to do such a thing. I mean, I don't um, want to pass judgment on like all hippos because I'm sure there's some good hippopotamuses out there. There's someone that kept a hippo for a pet, okay, and then got eaten by the hippo. Okay, I saw this story the other day. That's, you know, it's like a Tiger King kind of. Kind of it's just bad form, you know. It's like yeah. born with Mars square Saturn or something like that. Okay, well, yeah, it depends on the birth chart of the hippo, maybe. Yeah, yeah, right. um, yeah. And I, I, I just would it change things? Would it? Yeah, would it change? And it it and just seems the, reasonable. And is that the job as the astrologer to make those sort of suggestions? Because that is something that came up in my discussion with Ray Grassi. Yesterday is that one of his like core rules is don't tell clients what to do. That's right. I don't do that. Okay. I mean, well, I guess okay with the suggestion, but that's I mean, me being like a tad ridiculous and silly in saying that because I don't think anybody would. The hippopotamus. I was still talking about the, hip, the hippopotamus. We're still on the hippo thing, okay. but I do think okay if if hmm, let me, me think, to get away from the hippopotamus thing. Get let's, away from let's the ground hippo. This. Um, yeah, like I have a friend, right? He has a motorcycle now. Okay, I'm not a I'm not a supporter of this. Mm. And if he were to ask me, "Hey, man, I'm going to take my bike down to Taos tomorrow, and I know that the Mars square Saturn is there," mm. I wouldn't say, "Don't do it." I would say, "Hey, are you aware of the Mars Saturn square? Where is it at in your chart?" Right. Like I would give the awareness mm. to the client or the person. Yeah, and not be like, "Oh no, I wouldn't do that. You're going to die," or something. You know, like or get in an accident. Like I think it's more. I mean, that's giving power to the client. That's implied, though, when you say yeah, that, is, because then is. when they're like, "Why?" you're like, "Uh, yeah, yeah, motorcycles are dangerous, and that's a you know a dangerous transit." Yeah, I mean, as astro mm. astrologers, certainly, when we see a difficult transit hitting our chart, or especially a cluster of things, then you know we are we do try to exercise more caution on certain it's days, true. right? Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, but it, it's just tricky because then sometimes have you had the experience where certainly there's some transits where it does trigger something in you where you maybe um let's say you get a Mars transit and you're more irritable and you get in an argument with somebody that day or something mm -hmm. and later or or say something you regret or do something um impulsive without thinking and accidentally injure yourself or something like that whereas if you had cautioned yourself on that day or you were aware of things maybe you could have Acted differently, and there's like that version of it, which is one which is easily, you know, amenable to the idea that maybe there are things that we can change through self knowledge. Yep. Um, but then there's the other versions of the like external thing of like you're driving down the highway and some guy just comes out of nowhere and their car like slams into you or something like that, where it's like not really something you could necessarily have changed. Um, or in some instances where you try to change something, but in doing so, somehow it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and it sets up the sequence of events that wouldn't have happened otherwise if you hadn't attempted to avoid it. That's another scenario that's a little tricky. I'm with you. Yeah, okay. it's 
it's it's tampering with the unseen and and how it's all woven, I suppose. Right. And being humbled by the mystery is where I try to be. Sure. It. And then again, I mean, just empowering empowering people with it and, and, yeah. and getting them into the into the story, into the mythic, into I guess outside of the fear. That's the main part. I guess it just gets outside to the issue of like, what are we doing with astrology and how can it be helpful? And is it helpful if we're helping people to avoid things because we believe that you can avoid certain things through foreknowledge or alternatively in doing that, are we just freaking people out and causing unnecessary <laughs> psychological harm through you know, worrying them unnecessarily, let's say? Well, this is the most important question. It's like, well, what are we doing with astrology? Like, right. why do we even get into it in the first place? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> We're interested in ourselves, right? Yes. Well, that's, that's, I, I had a tweet about that this morning where I was reflecting. I said, um, what's interesting is that most astrologers use astrology primarily as a tool for self-knowledge. Mm -hmm. But as far as the public is concerned, most of the public is only interested in astrology in so much as it can make accurate predictions about events, mm -hmm. which is a really interesting like dichotomy that I know modern astrologers have struggled with the most, especially psychological astrologers, but it's even an issue for more predictive or, you know, traditional astrologers as well. Yeah. Yeah. So there's like the self-knowledge piece is big for what pulls people in to study it. And then mm -hmm. like the general public, like great example of it is the guy I'm renting from right now while I'm here. He's always asking me questions about what the sky says okay. about all this. Like, when is this going to be over? Hmm. Or, you know, like, what is, yeah, what's, what's January, February? Like, I just heard something about what's happening in February. It's like, ah, oh, the Pluto returns getting out. Hmm. Interesting. But yeah, it's a little bit of both. And I feel it's the most important question, I think, to always revisit for any serious student with astrology of like, well, why are we doing this? And right. again, like, to reiterate for myself, I think astrology is one of the most incredible tools of helping show where we're at in this story mm -hmm. that we call life. And I think, I, I really do think that there's kind of like a mythic substrate or foundation to our lives that perhaps we're being dreamt. And my, my, my theory around it comes from dream work. It comes from psychedelics. It comes from like reading people like Facino and Hillman and and whatnot, like there's there's something very bizarre going on with all of this, and it it will remain. It's one of those things in life where I'm okay with the mystery remaining a mystery. Like I don't know how astrology works. I think that podcast you did about Jung's theories about how astrology works. He had at yeah. least like seven right like theories, like ten theories over the course of his life, and he would go like back yeah. and forth between different ones as we all do. And it was almost reassuring to see that somebody of Jung's stature could be wrestling with it for his entire life. Yeah, and that's helpful to, right. to, to know about. Someone yeah. as intelligent as him, like all these different theories and, and obviously having fun with it. I want to be clear, I'm not meaning to put you, uh, putting you on the spot, but only in so much, and asking you some of these questions, but only in so much as they're things that I wrestle with myself and don't have final answers to. No. So I'm not trying to like, Tell you, tell me exactly how astrology works. Uh, oh, I know. What it, what is all the answers to these questions? But more part of my own, express my internal dialogue <laughs> about some of these issues that I go back and forth with myself about what is the purpose of astrology? How does it work? What should it be used for? What are the limits of advice to other people? And what should you be telling non-astrologers about what to do or not to do with their life? There's so many tricky issues. I mean, we are very interested. In stories, like mm. without them, 
like, what is life? What is, what is any of this? Right? Like right. when we meet somebody, we share stories. Like that's what we do. Mm. Like that's what creates our experience of being human. Mm. And there's something absolutely remarkable about how astrology helps with that. And, and when you're able to, let's use a great example of this. Um, like when you become tuned to how say eclipses work or the Venus synodic cycle, she's about to go retrograde, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you understand how these movements function a little bit, and then you're able to see the different iterations of them in your life, whether you're tracking Saros cycles or like the Venus eight year thing, like you're able to see these different nodes within your own story and how places, people, themes, are there, right? you know, like last time Venus was retrograding Capricorn, like I came back to Boulder the same way I came back this time where like, I didn't really have a reason to, but I kind of felt like I had to, mm-hmm. to finish things up. It was the same thing of like, oh, there's like loose ends. Like I have to come back to do that. Mm-hmm. And then the people that were in my life when I came back at that time are the same people that remain in Boulder. And it's like, even the area of where I am staying, like there's all of these different things where like a lot of my memories are from 2013, like November, December, 2013. And it's mm-hmm. like, wow, that was the last time Venus was an evening star over the flat irons looking at me. And it's just, it's a story, but yeah. it's an amazing way of getting context of how we tend to kind of evolve within a Fibonacci spiral with Venus, you know, like we get wiser with our heart. Mm-hmm. We get better at relationship. We, 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 we grow in our relationship to this whether it's a goddess or, or or something that tunes us to beauty and meaning in our lives. And I think that th- that is why I keep studying and doing astrology is because when I can see that go off right. in a person's head and like, oh my goodness, like I see it. Like I can see how these nodes function and I understand my story. And like when there's that moment of true aha and they have mythic context, I, I mean, my job is done right? Because they have that now and they can see it. And then they, they always can relate to it Yeah, and deepen that story. Because as- astrology gives you a glimpse of your life narrative, basically. Yeah. That's it. And, and then it shows you, it gives you a glimpse, sometimes briefly, into there is this story that's being written that is your life that you're experiencing in little slices of time. But large parts of that narrative are somehow tied together in this mysterious way. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. Right. And 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 for for people to you know be so charged say against it. It's like, well, what's wrong with people trying to have like greater context to their life, right? right? And you know, whether it is psychological or faded or you know the divide between those two camps, I think ultimately both of them attempt to do the same thing. Yeah. Well, and that's when I said self-knowledge earlier, that's self-knowledge, like knowledge, uh, uh, the discovery of your own life narrative, that is a form of self-knowledge. And yeah, because some of the traditional astrologers like pushed back against that and said, well, astrology is predictive. Like, yeah, that's part of it. But ultimately finding your life narrative through the birth chart is, uh, you know, the overarching thing, like theme. And that does get into the mythic Area of astrology because myth, myth is partially about that too of telling stories and the and the overall arc of a, a narrative or of a story. It gets me excited to see our own syncretism between psychology, mythology, and all forms of 
astrology, you mm-hmm. know, the ancient and, and, and the different camps and see how they can come together to inform like a really, really amazing way of seeing ourselves in life. It's, it's truly exciting. And um, where do you feel, this is a question for you, like where do you feel is the next movement of this? Like, do you feel that like in the next decade, or so, like astrology, like right now it seems the big thing is traditional. Like people like, re, like it's a renaissance mm-hmm. at the moment. I really do think so. <clears throat> but do you feel that astrology will kind of move into a more therapeutic domain with the popularity of it, you know, being used by psychotherapists and stuff like that? And that's how it'll get its big hit because it seems to be becoming more and more normalized. Mm. Or... Like, I'm just really curious of like where you feel like it's headed because now that it's kind of getting a resurgence and a more acceptance, where, where to next? I mean, I think internally in the field, the next step is the synthesis of modern and ancient astrology and all of these different traditions that have been dug up, like taking the best pieces of all of them and putting them together. And that's already happening. And some of the latest generation of books that are now starting to come out are showing signs of that synthesis. Mm-hmm. One I forgot to mention earlier that's on my list is Demetra George's book, Astrology and the Authentic Self, mm-hmm. which I think is one of the first successful attempts at synthesizing ancient and modern astrology together. Um, so internally, I think that's part of it. Externally, we're already, I've, I don't know where the top is, but I feel like we're Almost at the top of astrology's popularity, or astrology peaking in popularity culturally right now. Like it's been this huge zeitgeist recently over the past few years, and this influx of a huge number of younger astrologers into the field, which has been mind blowing, as well as the diversification of the field and so many things like that. But one of the things I worry about is um, the pushback. Like, you know, whenever something becomes wildly popular culturally, it's only a matter of time before there's a little bit of pushback. And I, and I've, I don't know how far into the future that is, but that's one of the things I th- I think about. And I was just talking with Nick Diggin best about earlier today is like when that happens. Pushback by the culture or pushback by some of the institutions, like the cult we were speaking about. The culture and you know, uh, just a, ri- a change in either the cultural trends, like it's become so trendy today to talk about astrology, and it's becoming more popular where general concepts are becoming. In more wide currency, for example, twenty years ago, people knew their sun sign, but now you mm-hmm. can ask somebody their sun, moon, and rising, and they'll know mm-hmm. what their sun, moon, and rising is, which is is amazing and blows my mind compared to twenty years ago. Um, concepts like Mercury retrograde are becoming more more popular and more well known by just general people. But at the same time, if you pay attention, those concepts also sometimes are wearing on people that aren't into astrology and they're constantly hearing like every three months people start everyone starts talking about mercury retrograding and, and seemingly going crazy about it that is something where I, I have noticed there's some people that are like over that and they're just like and will mock it or, or what have you because it just seems absurd to them from an outsider's perspective which is a little bit understandable honestly and i could just see trends like that Go a little bit further in the future because I think the skeptic movement has fallen apart over the past decade and is in complete disarray, partially through the loss of some of the previous leaders like James Randi who passed away. Um, and for some reason, skepticism has sort of gotten decentralized and kind of fall, fallen apart and doesn't have very good leadership. But I could see a renewal of interest in skepticism at some point because we're in such a flourishing of not just astrology, but also magic and mysticism. Mm-hmm. 
but also some of the, a little bit of the dark side of that, which is like conspiracy theories um, and some of the other things surrounding that, like the flat earth theory, honestly, I don't want to get like- Where'd that go? That didn't get- I mean, it's still out there. It's still a surprising amount of people are like, you know, doing big YouTube channels on flat earth theory. And there's stuff like that where I could see astrology getting lumped in with that and mm. lumped in with the tendency towards conspiracy theories or other things like that. And then being rejected wholesale as part of that if we knew, moved into a new era where just the winds change in some sense. Like that's one of the questions I have is, is that going to happen? And if so, when? Because astrology goes through waves of popularity historically. It always goes up and down. It never stays permanently up for too long. Nothing does. It's know? hard to know with the ancient world, but it does seem like like in before Christ <clears throat> that it was pretty standardized. I mean, most cultures, especially in Mesopotamia, had their astrology, did they not? I mean, I mean it wasn't the same. It wasn't the way that we use it, but like, did it ebb and flow in the same way that you're talking about? I think it did. It's harder to study in the Mesopotamian tradition, but they definitely had eras like the seventh century BCE was like it was super in yep. and super endorsed by the kings. The kings were using it and had different colleges of astrologers all around Mesopotamia sending them reports. So that's under the, like the Neo Assyrians in the seventh century. But then, mm -hmm. you know, the Persian uh, Empire then conquered, and there may have been a period where it may have fallen out of favor with like the kings and stuff. And this may have led to the development of like natal astrology. So eventually, natal astrology gets introduced a few centuries later, becomes popularized as a more personal form of astrology. And one of the questions is, did that happen because it wasn't supported as much by the state at that point, or you know, we don't really know because it's not well documented. Or later, you have the Hellenistic tradition and the invention of um, natal charts with planets, signs, houses, and aspects in the first century. That becomes really popular for two or three centuries and then drops off with the rise of Christianity. Then it comes back again in the medieval period under the Arabic tradition, and it's really popular in like the eighth and ninth century Baghdad. But then through religious opposition, that drops off a little bit um, once the Quran becomes more standardized, or at least commentaries on it do. And it just keeps doing that over and over again of going up and going down over very extended periods of time. But nonetheless, but ultimately it goes up. Yeah, it does go <laughs> back up at some point. So yeah. the question is, if that's an arc, where are we on that arc right now? So because you're acting like you, you seem to see it like we're still down here or like halfway up the arc, but I can't tell if we're closer to the peak, which is what makes me a little. Oh, nervous. I like this speculation. Yeah, where are we? I think there's a there's a couple moments that we still have yet to see. Like what? Like the president is an astrologer or something? Well, like the Reagan thing. That's like, true. So there was there was that president's using astrology. Yeah. Um it's it's pretty pervasive in music. I know that at, at this point. Like sure. there's a lot of popular music talking about astrology in there. Like Adele just released her album, which is based on her Saturn return or something. Is it? Yeah, I and Trevor so. Hall did too, a whole album about his Saturn return years and Okay. Um I mean, I mean, like as far as like big platforms, like there's never been, say, an astrologer on the JRE before, right? It's like who would do that? You, me, Rick? I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of somebody who there's that. Well, yeah, I was trying to think of the the like NFL player who was an astrologer. That, oh, Ricky, I had him on my podcast. Oh, did you? Yeah, Ricky. Yeah, Ricky's really amazing. Cool. I came across like a documentary about his life that was actually really good on YouTube and it gave me more context for like who he is and where he was coming from. He's Ricky's, a very cool yeah. guy. He'd be the one. Yeah. Because he would smoke weed okay. with 
with Rogan the whole time and then talk astrology. That would help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, there's certain seminal moments like with with that, I, I think, you know, like having maybe him and Neil deGrasse Tyson go on together or like it would be really neat to see maybe Tarnas and Neil deGrasse Tyson or something yeah, along those lines. Yeah, it needs to be somebody that can actually hang with dealing with somebody that like- level. Yeah, because that's usually the trick is they get astrologers that can't, but that are willing to delude themselves into thinking that they can actually engage with somebody that has that background in like science and philosophy and whatever. And when you put two people in a room that don't, like the disparity gets lopsided. Very. <clears throat> I mean, that's just an example. Like, I mean, this is where we're at in culture. But for you, know? but for you you're saying like, you feel like greater cultural acceptance is still something where you, you'd like to see there be more cultural acceptance than there is today. Oh, I honestly don't care. Okay. I don't think. I, I mean, I kind of like being where we're at. Mm. It's, it's kind of nice. Uh, but as far as like, what's the mark of the top? Right. Like, what's the top of our wave? The wave that Chris is on with his two mics at the top of the wave. And <laughs> right. I'm somewhere along there. Um, I think we've still got some time. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've seen the resurgence kind of be parallel. To Neptune moving into Pisces. Yeah, that's why I, I keep talking to Austin about this, and he keeps saying it's Neptune and Pisces. He does. Yeah. Yo, uh, we're in agreement there, uh, then. Austin's big, and I've been coming around to this because if you contextualize it within the broader context of also, you know, because his big thing is is magic and astrological magic, and that's right. seen a huge resurgence. Side by side. Rapidly. Yeah. So, you know, he attributes that to Neptune and Pisces and points back to like the 1800s where you had Neptune and Pisces and you had the uh, whole spiritualism, spiritualism and, and, and seances and all of that. And that that may actually be what we're going through right now is, is a period like that. But then if that was true, then the end point becomes like Neptune and Aries, which mm -hmm. is several years off. But it's interesting because Saturn conjoins Neptune right about the same time that, that ingress takes place. So that would be an well, important turning point. Perhaps, you know, and those were also the gold rush years. And okay. there's a lot of expansion, I think, just like endless possibility in the collective mind of a lot of people on the planet mm. in the late 19th century. Right. And, um, you know, that's happening now in a couple ways, mm. like, a, like a digital gold rush and also a green rush of sorts that's, right. that's occurring. Um, I, I, I'm not sure, but to call it, like if I were to call it, if you were to force me to say, the ingress of Neptune into Aries, we'll see something like a top. When is that again? Like 2024, that? is it? 2024, okay, I can look at that. I don't know for sure, but that's- That's roughly probably right? Yeah. Okay, well that's Maybe like right before later. like Uranus goes into Gemini, which is gonna be wild, and Pluto goes into Aquarius. Yeah, I always think about Nick's work with Uranus and Gemini. Yeah, in the United States and the tendencies there. I keep thinking about like the announcement of the the meta announcement by Facebook Ugh. a few a few months ago. It was so what well, was mocked and, and seems so comical to us now. But I was thinking about that recently, and it could be one of those things because I watched a later interview with Zuckerberg, and he was talking about like end of this decade was his time frame for this actually becoming a thing. And that lines up so well with the Uranus going through Gemini and the Pluto going through Aquarius that I'm a little nervous that he's right and that this looks like a, you know, John F. Kennedy at the beginning of the 60s announcing that by the end of the decade we're going to put a man on the moon right. and just how absurd that must have sounded at the beginning of the 1960s right. versus like they actually pulled it off in like 1968, 1969. And yeah.
I feel you familiar with Moore's law? Yeah. So what technology and processors specifically, what increase at this rate? Exponentially every Exponentially. Year, okay. Right. And so this whole meta announcement mm-hmm. is basically Zuck trying to catch up to what's already happening. Okay. Um, what's already happening, the metaverse is already built for the most part. Sandbox, Decentraland, there's many of these different projects on blockchain. Well, and I thought like second, I was doing Second Life in like 2005, we were holding astrology meetings and Nick Dagan best gave a lecture and like that was metaverse like right there. Right. But that kind of dropped off, which always surprised me because it seemed really novel at the time. You gotta, you gotta incentivize it with money, mm. right? And so what's interesting about the metaverse these days is you can make money in there. You can play games in there, you can have shops in there, you can do really anything yeah. in these metaverses. And so like the explosion that's happening, I think what Zuck is trying to do is front run what's already occurring. Okay, right? that makes sense. Because they and, had money, they had Lindens and Second Life, and that was valuable and people were doing consultations and moving money in and out of there. But now it's been reversed where Bitcoin is actually a real currency that's really valuable and become really valuable in the past year in the real yeah. world. And then if you have an, a digital world where money can move in and out of that, then it becomes valuable. And it's through NFTs. Right, that are Explain interchangeable. This. I, I still don't know what an NFT oh, is. I need, I need an explanation. And this is totally related to Neptune Pisces, Jupiter Pisces talk, like the okay. metaverse and us moving into it. So many people are scared of it. So many people don't think it's going to happen. Let me tell you right now, it's here, and we should be a little worried. I'm, I'm trying. I've been trying NFTs. to understand what an NFT is. Okay. I've looked it up a few times. I still do not know what what the hell it is. It stands for non non fungible token. Okay. All right. It means nothing to me, but okay. <laughs> I know one of those words. Yeah. So it's it's not um it's 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 not really a currency like say Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of these things can be. Right. Right. An NFT basically mints an object. So like the JPEG mania with like Banksy and like all these artists, they're minting their art and turning them into NFTs. And so it's it, it's a signing one small piece I understand is it's assigning a blockchain number just like Bitcoin to a digital Thing, like a piece of artwork. Yeah, right? that's the mint. That's the idea. Like you, you basically mint it on chain, and so it becomes. It's it's the only version. It's unique. Okay. Right. And so when it comes to art, that's very important, right? Like, and and so what? A and, great example. Of this and, is and Banksy, and it is a way of 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 transferring ownership of something. Yeah. Okay. And it's programmable. So like a really clever way that some of these artists are are, are working with the NFTs at, at the moment is like every, like if say you create an NFT, like we take a snapshot of us doing this podcast right now, we turn it into a cartoon image or something like that. And then we mint it and turn it into an NFT. Mm-hmm. We can program into that, that every time it exchanges hands, we get a percentage of it. And so like, this is game changing for artists because mm-hmm. it basically pushes aside the record companies where you know they were completely disempowered like especially putting your music on spotify and stuff like mm, this streaming and, and so nfts with music like a lot of artists are on it already like snoop dogg and a lot of the rappers actually and djs are like way ahead of the game as far as like turning their music with nfts and you can incentivize you know different levels of the nft where it, it grants like your fans access to you, you know, backstage or like certain tickets or whatever. Like it's basically a programmable item on chain that is kind of limitless. And so there'll be anything and that the can fact be NFTs. That it, it's on the chain means it can't be replicated. Immutable. So it's, it's a unique, non-replicatable digital signature in a way that you can attach to a digital good that, that can't be replicated. So it's the only one of that thing. Yeah. 
okay. scarcity and and that's the brilliance of it. And it's the brilliance of blockchain really is because it's immutable, right? right? And it can't be changed. And that's why it's so valuable when it comes to money. But like blockchain technology, as we just mentioned, like with the metaverse and NFTs and so many other um, use cases, it already is changing the world. And it's Moore's law, it's exponential. Like the internet was the fastest growing adoption curve or network effect that we'd ever seen, ever. Mm. Bitcoin and blockchain, it's like three or four times as fast. Yeah, when, and somebody and, said that it's like the early days of the internet where you could see the applications in like 1993 or 1994 yeah. of like, we could do someday like online commerce or people could exchange goods and services through the internet someday and people could kind of like see that coming, but it looked a ways off. Some yeah. of this is like that where people are seeing the long-term impact and how this is like game changing, but even if it's not fully there yet. Yeah. And so how does it relate to Neptune and Pisces? Right. And and Jupiter and Pisces. So there's this project coming out. Um, oh God, what is it called? Is it Hotbit? Or so it has something to do, it's not Hotbit, darn it. Essentially, it's VR that you put on when you're in a car, all right? Okay. So it's like for your kids or whoever's like a passenger and you put oh, okay. on the VR goggles and then in, 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 in the reality that you see is completely different. So maybe it's like dinosaurs all around you or it's like cartoon like Minecraft or something like this. And mm -hmm. I look at this and I don't get excited. Like I don't, I don't really like the idea of people moving into the metaverse because you know they will right like the minecraft generation and all of this like, it, like sandbox for example looks like minecraft mm. right and then you have like all like i mean my god chris like the land in these metaverses right. are just they're equal to land in the real world yeah i mean that's do you did you not do second life in like mid 2000s no. really trendy okay no, you're missing didn't. out my so friend. it was <laughs> it was <laughs> the same of, like, with that too. nerdy 20 year old astrologer behavior yeah it was like you could buy and sell parcels of land. There you go. And the land itself was on servers. And so the servers had a lim limited number of computational power in terms of running the simulation. So you're buying parts of this land, you're essentially also buying up server space. Uh -huh. And that became valuable and people would like get into like real estate and they would like buy and sell land in second life or they would make um, clothes for like other people that you could buy. Uh, that's another. Did you see one? I was seeing um, digital clothes, which is a really interesting thing, like the buying and selling. There's of digital clothes. Have you yeah, seen like this? skin, or I mean, do you mean like skins for your avatar in the metaverse? Well, that's that was one thing in, in Second Life they were doing like 15 years ago. But the new thing that I saw, I was watching um, a YouTube video about like a month ago, was that you can buy digital clothes that are designed by designers, and you can purchase it. And they will basically like Photoshop it onto you in a single Instagram picture, which you then can like post on Instagram wearing this like elaborate outfit. Um, but it's an outfit that doesn't exist outside of this picture, basically. So you can't 3D print it yet? Not yet. And make it I your mean, own? Maybe someday. That could be like one of the next steps. But it, it's interesting having a, you know, purchasing a, something that alters a digital image in a way. But is only in the digital realm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, these ideas, I mean, we're, we're here, we're in it. And right. the adoption is very, very quick. Yeah. And so, like, my concern, and the pandemic definitely accelerated this, is people moving into the machine more okay. than right. ever. Yeah. Right. And when it comes to the metaverse, like, if you, 
you know, build your practice. And I was joking with my patrons about this in a, in a recent parlor we were doing. And, you know, like it's, I, I could do this. Like I could, you know, purchase land, say in sandbox and <clears throat> make it really beautiful, have a pagoda mm -hmm. there. And then like, we all show up as, you know, our own avatars and we do the parlor like that. Yeah. I mean, why not? We did that with MySpace Astrology Group. Nick Digg and Best gave an astrology lecture. In and you did place. it. Like, yeah, we did yeah. it. Like yeah. 2005, 2006. And so you'll be, you'll be ahead of the curve. You think you'll be doing this po this podcast in the future in the metaverse then? I don't know. Maybe I could see, I, I like to stay ahead of technological trends. And I think that's a little bit part of my Aquarius rising Uranus conjunct in midheaven. Yeah. Um, check out Sandbox. Yeah, I'll check it out. It's tricky because, um, you know, one thing that's funny that's going to date this decade that we just experienced at the 2010s is like um, holding little tablet mobile phones. Something I was thinking about recently, like that form factor, even though we, we take it for granted now and it's so ubiquitous, is just temporary. And it's something that will look funny 10 or 20 or 30 years from now in the same way that something, you know, like a record player looks funny from like the 1970s or something like that. True. Do you think they'll augment it with a contact lens or glasses? Um, yeah, I mean, glasses is definitely going to be one of the next ones that's coming up. Like Google failed with that 10 years ago, but now a bunch of the companies are really starting to invest in that because they're able to get it smaller at this point. But it's like that, but also, um, you know, implants and like bionic stuff is, oh, is going to come up at some point. Neuralink? Yeah. Neuralink and being able to control things not with your hands and not having to manipulate things digitally, but being able to manipulate things through, you know, brainwaves and things like that, which is how we control our hands in the first place. So, how does this relate to Neptune and Pisces and Jupiter coming together? To me, actually, it was more of a Jupiter and Aquarius and Saturn and Aquarius thing. Uh -huh. I, I don't know about Neptune and Pisces, how it relates to that, but the announcement by Zuck, Zuckerberg about changing the Facebook name to Meta, it came like right after Jupiter and Saturn just stationed direct in Aquarius. Okay. What was interesting is that Obama announced they broke ground within 24 hours of Zuckerberg's announcement. They announced that they broke ground on Obama's presidential library in Chicago. And Obama, of course, famously has Aquarius rising with Jupiter and Aquarius. So there's some sort of weird like Jupiter and Aquarius overlap there. And I think that's part of what may end up being relevant about the meta announcement with Facebook. I can agree with that. You know, the tech being built out and Aquarius being a perfect fit mm. with within all of that. And then I'd say the the effect on culture in all of us will be the Piscean okay. one, where it's like a black mirror. Are you, you you seem worried about that a little yeah. bit? There's a little underlying tone of like. Well, not... I'm worried about the dark side of blockchain as well. What is the dark side of blockchain? CBDCs, like central bank digital currencies. So not the environmental impact or something like that. No, that's farce. Okay. No, the CBDCs. Yeah. CBD. Uh, central bank digital currencies. All right. I thought we were going to get into a marijuana conversation, but what? <laughs> we could. I, we could, we could. <laughs> yeah. The, the CBD could. Uh, downside of blockchain. I was yeah. interested in, but explain this other bank thing to me. Yeah. So China's already done it. <clears throat> I don't know to what extent, but they're definitely controlling like the use of all of their population's internet, especially with younger kids. Like there's like great control happening and, and they have their digital currency, I think already, um, out and they keep issuing like periodically attempts to ban Bitcoin, right? Oh, they've banned it like at least a hundred times since I've been involved. Right. Yeah, but what they did back in May was legit. They kicked all the miners out. Okay. Which is great for the U.S. because they all came here. A lot of them came here. Hmm. Anyway, CBDC, central bank digital currencies, are you know the idea of digital currencies for nations, right? 
Now, what worries me about them is that, well, when it comes to blockchain and we know the immutability that we were just speaking about, and we know the traceability of all of this stuff and the programmability, mm -hmm. well, what could a government do with their currency that is that, right? Well, anything they want, really. Mm -hmm. Like they can control your spending habits, they can see all of your spending habits, they can turn off your access to that money, they can incentivize you mm -hmm. to do certain behaviors. Right, because with Bitcoin, one of the issues is people often think early in the early days, people thought it was like something that could be used on like the black market to spend funds like um, secretly with anonymity. But Bitcoin doesn't actually grant anonymity because all, the whole blockchain and all the transactions yeah. are actually public. Yeah, if you if you're a drug dealer, you want cash, hmm. not Bitcoin. Right. I mean, it's just the silliest right. argument. That's our. So everyone has learned something just now. All the kids yeah. watching this episode. That, yeah, that's kids. your advice. In the Silk Road, be careful. Like right. it didn't go well for whatever his name is. But um, I think we have a birth time for him. Actually, it's a really interesting chart. And speaking of Pluto, when I did a Bitcoin episode with Robert Weinstein a year ago, one of his most impressive demonstrations that he might have had the right chart for Bitcoin was that. When transiting Pluto went over the sun of the Bitcoin chart, there was the Mt. Gox hack and the yeah. biggest hack in like the history of Bitcoin that um, yeah was just like uh, crucial in destabilizing the entire thing for a little bit. Is that the Leo rising chart? I think so. Which that's would, the one we all use. Yeah, which everyone uses, and but it gives a little like that was one thing where normally I would be more hands off and like who knows what the time is like you can't hard to time something like that, but like that was pretty impressive if the sun is also like the ruler of the ascendant. That's pretty impressive that yeah. that could actually be the right, correct time chart. Yeah. yeah. Now, there's a few things about that chart that are phenomenal. Like, for example, Saturn being on the North Node mm. at the moment and Saturn squaring the nodes. Okay. And every exact hit has been like a major hyped period over this past year. Like the first pass, I think it was either February or March when okay. Saturn first hit the North Node. And traditionally, it rules it because it's an Aquarius, right? Mm -hmm. That's when Elon got involved. And there was all this institutional hype okay. about people getting involved. You can, yeah, try to pull it up. I'll see if I have it saved. And then the second one was in late July. And I mean, it's so sad to say it, but it was when Elon stopped trolling the Bitcoin space. Like he basically was messing yeah. with all of us from May until <laughs> late July. Yeah. And then that was the second pass. So that was a retrograde one. And then the final one is soon. I think it's on uh, either the solstice or Christmas Eve. Okay. Do you happen and, to know the Bitcoin like data for the chart? Um, Do you have it like memorized? It's I don't January third, two thousand nine. Uh, Leo rising, so the sun's in the six, so it's just after sunset. Um, so six p.m. five p.m. I think it's January third. I'm pretty and, sure. And so this is the one, the Leo rising, where we're presuming like a London starting point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's like four degrees Leo rising. For the mysterious founder. Satoshi. Satoshi's founder of Bitcoin. That's not right. A little bit later. Let's do 6 p.m. You could do animate the transits. Yeah. You want That's the close. transit. That's close. Here, let me That's pretty much share that and make sure. No and no. Okay. This is the first chart we've looked at, Chris. I know. <laughs> no. Well, I tried to pull up one earlier, but I didn't have the person's birth chart saved. So I. We were looking for Chino or something? Yeah, I forget what chart it was. Um, 
All right, there it is. So this is yeah. now showing for the video viewers. Um, so Leo rising chart and the sun yeah. at 13 Capricorn. And when Pluto hit that, there was, you know, that's just another example of in terms it's of horrible. empirical attempts to understand what Pluto means, like having yeah. the like criminal underworld of like, in that instance, like hackers, like hack a bank and steal like millions and millions of dollars worth of money. And it was the only exchange back then. Okay. So it was like the way that you had to get your Bitcoin right. was through Mt. Gox. Okay. <clears throat> I wasn't involved then. I got involved a little bit later. Could you imagine though? I mean, no. you weren't, weren't you mining Bitcoin? I mean, early on in like 2009, 2010, I did very briefly, but I didn't oh stick with God, it at the time. Oh my God, you were early. Yeah, I was super early, but I was like broke and like sleeping on my friend's couch like 12 years ago. And I just moved to this area of Denver. So I was not at all like in a good place. And I just quit my job as a barista in order to do astrology full time. So I was not super able to invest in like a big mining rig or something like that. But otherwise, have similar I'd... stories. It must be Pluto on our luminaries. Yeah. I quit the barista job, was okay. broke. Um, so yeah, you were, when, when you look at the start, the Mount Gox thing is fascinating, but like the what, point. What were you talking about with the recent transit? There's so much to what's going on with, with the Bitcoin transits at the moment. The main one is the Pluto Uranus, or sorry, Saturn Uranus squares. So just pull up the transits so you can see it. Like the final pass of Saturn is coming. Uh -oh. um, and I think it's on Christmas Eve. And it's a good case for the nodes and like using the traditional ruler for it because, you know, the quick translation I have of this. So it's what transit are you looking at? Saturn. So transiting Saturn on the north node. So transiting Saturn right now is at eight degrees of Aquarius and the Bitcoin north node using the true node is at nine degrees of Aquarius. There you go. And so there's been two passes already. So you're saying with every time Saturn goes over that, that that's been a negative thing? No. Positive thing? Yeah. Yeah, Very. that and like Jupiter and Aquarius seems like it's been wildly positive for Bitcoin this year. Yeah. Whereas, ironically, some of the Bitcoin astrologers were predicting that like Jupiter and Pisces would be good for it. But what I thought was funny, been. no, it tanked like yeah. when Jupiter dipped into Pisces over yeah. the summer. And that was also when I think Elon started doing his, some of his weird stuff uh, of like yes. uh, putting doubt on it or whatever. But then once Jupiter went back into Aquarius, the price shot up again. Yeah. 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 And <clears throat> so I gave a reading. Uh, back in 2012 to a couple of fellows in Germany about Bitcoin. And I remember this, like looking at this transit this time, it was like starting with the Pluto-Saturn conjunction mm -hmm. and then also tracking this and, and, and the narrative of like, well, if this is anything, it's going to basically show its true colors of its efficacy, its, its adoption curve now. Why? And this comes from EA actually, and, mm -hmm. and, and specifically Stephen's work because the rulers of the nodes become these tracking devices for the stories in so, terms of tracking the like past lives of bitcoin not the, yeah. <laughs> all right <laughs> so in simple terms uh, you look at the north node of bitcoin it's not a person so like what does it mean well it's the story that it's here to write mm, all right okay so what is an aquarian story in the seventh house mm -hmm. it's exactly what satoshi's white paper basically outlines have you ever read it before I've read parts of it, but it's just like outlining blockchain technology, but it doesn't get into like big picture things of how this could change the world necessarily. No, no, no. But peer to peer digital currency, the decentralization and the way that it works, you know, like the monetary policy that essentially is revolutionary to the corruption that's in the banks and the Fed at the moment. Oh, right. Yeah. Cause he does. It was partially a position paper because it's written in the aftermath or current ongoing thing of the financial collapse and scandals yes. involving the banks yes. at the time. And he included that as yes. part of his like 
call to, well, not call to arms, but like rationale for releasing this. Yes. I mean, that's the most important thing about Pluto's ingress into Capricorn mm. is that the economic disaster happened. Right. And it, and it was the worst part about that was so many people were hurt, innocent people by that with the mm. subprime mortgages and everything. And no one got in trouble. And we all watched that happen. Right. Right. Like we were able to see it in a way like never before. Whereas, you know, like I was a little kid in 88, 89, there was a crash then or, you know, whatever. Like we don't need to get into markets, but it's, which was the Capricorn pileup, by the way, of planets in uh, uh, like Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Capricorn was 89. Cause yeah. that was ironically tying back into your story, the mundane astrology book by Nicholas Campion and Michael, Michael Bajan. Yeah. Um, was it Michael that issued a prediction there in that book, which was published in like 83, 84, that the Soviet Union would fall or something? Like he said something very explicit in this like 1988, 89 timeframe. Sounds like him. Under that stellium of planets that would pile up in Capricorn. And I know Nick Campion a few years ago, I, I saw him make a statement that that was still one of the most sort of stunningly accurate predictions that he'd ever seen made wow. in terms of the the dissolution of the Soviet Union in the late 80s and early 90s that happened under that pileup of planets in Capricorn. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have the book. I'll have to read it. Okay. But it sounds like him, right? Yeah. It sounds like him. And also like a huge part of the narrative as I talk about Bitcoin and crypto more and more, because people want me to be talking about it, mm. is the Saturn Uranus cycle began then, right? That was the conjunction. Yes. And then the first square was 2000 like in that era, so Y2K, hmm. then 2008, 2009 was the opposition, yeah, and then now. So now, okay. So there's two stories you can track with that. One is the adoption of the World Wide Web, which began in 88, 89. I think that's was the first protocol like tested or, or something along those lines. Hmm. But there was that crash. So that you have these two narratives you can track with the Saturn Uranus cycle. Mm -hmm. And then in uh, 2000, like Y2K, years is where we were at with the internet. I mean, it was very, very similar to the feeling right now with crypto, mm -hmm. like all these new applications, all yeah. these companies, all this stuff, all this early, hype. Early days. Bubble. Crash. 2008. Yeah. And where we're at with the adoption, the most important thing about 2008, 2009, as far as adoption, is the Bitcoin story, right? Like Bitcoin comes out. Mm -hmm. um, but also, didn't we start our podcast in 2009? When did you start yours? I mean, I, um, yeah, I, there was an older podcast called Traditional Astrology Radio, I think that started in 2009, and yeah. I took over on like my birthday, November 1st, 2010. There you go. So right around that time. Yeah. And it still relates to tracking the World Wide Web and all of the development and innovation with that technology. That's one way of tracking the Saturn-Uranus pair mm -hmm. I find really interesting, but also these market crashes. Yeah. And everyone's been calling for a major market crash for as long as, well, ever since 2008, really. Yeah. Um, but we are pretty primed for that at the moment. Mm -hmm. And I think by backtesting it from 88, 2000, 2008, and seeing this moment that we're in, right? I don't, you know, like for example, when it comes to crypto, like a lot of people think we're in this extended cycle. It's just going to keep going on forever because of the adoption. Mm -hmm. I couldn't disagree more. I think that the everything bubble is going to get a nice needle. We're not in, in the a, coming months. What are we at though? We're not at a hard aspect with Saturn and Uranus. We're at the Saturn and no, no, by transit, the final oh, the, square the is square. on the solstice, okay. I think. Gotcha. Okay. You're talking about the three See, squares that we've occurred. Yeah, harmonic fourth this year. aspects gotcha. is basically what I'm talking about. Okay. Got it. Yep. That makes sense. Um, yeah, we're coming up on the third and final one in December. Yeah. Um, there's a lot in December. There's a lot. Like, that's the other half of 
It's like this heavy month, but then next month, and then also the Venus retrograde conjunct Pluto. And some people wonder if that's not tied into some financial stuff as well. Well, look at the Bitcoin chart where it happens. Where does it happen? So I mean, Venus retro Venus's it goes all the way to the sun. I think the cycle begins very close to the sun. So there's Venus and January sixth or something like that. Seventh in mid-December conjunct Pluto, 26, 25. And what are you looking at? So uh the synodic cycle beginning. So go to like January 6th, Venus conjunct the sun. I think it's very close to Bitcoin's birthday. There you go. Well, no. That's not right. I guess it's a little bit further. Maybe the eighth and ninth. There you go. Right there, the synodic conjunction at eighteen, close to the sun at thirteen. So, yeah, nothing exact is there. I mean, that's interesting. It's interesting on Neptune's like hovering over Uranus in the Bitcoin chart lately, yeah. and the fluctuations this year, um, somewhat unexpectedly. Interesting. I mean, it's been historic. People get caught up in this little, you know, like it corrected from May until July, and people were losing their minds, but. For context, for anybody not involved, I mean, it went from sixty-four thousand dollars to thirty. Okay, right. And a year ago, Bitcoin was worth like eight thousand dollars. Or God, where's my time? <laughs> At the beginning of the pandemic in March, it was three thousand dollars. Yeah. And and then a week ago, it was sixty-nine thousand dollars. So like people complaining about price fluctuation, like it's the most volatile thing that's ever existed. Right. But it's also the best performing asset that the world's ever seen. Mm. And there's a reason for that. And it's Satoshi's vision. How has that been for you? Because you were doing talking about Bitcoin astrology like years ago, and yeah, almost like nobody was talking about it then, honestly. But then it's really taken off in the past like year or two, and and then Bitcoin itself has taken off. Like, has Huge. that been wild for you to watch? Yeah, I think you know, for all of us, and I personally don't see myself as like an early adopter or an OG. But you mm. know, twenty like, well, I did the reading in twenty twelve. They offered to pay me in Bitcoin. I didn't take it. <laughs> how many bit? How many bitcoins would that at the have time? Been? I think it was one. Okay, so that would be worth only like sixty-nine thousand dollars. You know, seventy thousand dollars. You know, <laughs> that's the yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I was I, I was living on a friend's couch, literally in Austin. So yeah. there you go. I, I needed money. Right. So I was aware of it then. And then a few of my friends from that point until 2016, 17, when I got involved, were mining mm. and like getting involved. So I was like very aware of it. I just never, honestly, I, I didn't have extra money to yeah. put into a space. That's right. basically where I was at. And so when, when, when that happened, and I, I got very lucky actually, because in 2017, I was when I first bought, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and and all of these uh, coins. You started buying into all coins as well at the time. A bit, okay. a bit. I didn't know a lot. I was, you know, beginner's luck, very ignorant about what was happening. It was all in Coinbase, and then the parabolic run up of 2017 in December happened, and I was just like watching it, very, you know, like like I had no idea what was happening. I was like, this is kind of magnificent. Like, wow, like mm. that's. That's interesting how that works. Right. And um it was it was after that moment when I actually did a podcast, uh I did a few of them actually on on crypto when I started learning about it. And pretty much for the past three, four years, I've been I've been really learning a lot. Okay. Um, there's there's some fascinating people in this space that I really enjoy listening to. Right. Um Robert Breedlove, Rao Paul. Um there's, you know, a long list of folks. But anyway. 
So just been learning a lot, tracking the astrology, and then as far as like watching the world, are you showing me Second Life? I mean, I'm trying to pull up some pictures. I don't think I can show that. Are you even listening to me right no, now? I'm, I'm listening to you. I'm just like, there's parts of the conversation that are still echoing in my brain yeah. about, you know, the past and the past echoing and repeating and, and parts of the past that were important, but early phases, you know, seeing the rise of that or seeing the repetition of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you getting in in seventeen in twenty seventeen, that's still like early compared to where we are now. It was pretty early. We have like countries that are adopting it as like a currency it. at this point. I love it. Yeah. yeah, the El Salvador story. Like, if anyone wants to leave the U.S. or wherever you're at, <clears throat> you can go to El Salvador and get a passport for three Bitcoin. Hmm. I mean, it's just incredible, and like more and more countries are going to do this. Yeah, and it's Moore's law. Like, it's very very quick. Right. And then you have Hillary Clinton coming out and warning at this like teleconference that happened this past week about like the dangers of Bitcoin. It's like, get out of here. Mm. Like it's like, it's so uh, like the network effect is so large and so global mm. that there's no stopping it at this point. And countries can try to regulate it out of existence, but people, all the developers and all the minds will go elsewhere. You know, something that's really it's, relevant and important in terms of this, that's actually very timely for astrologers and tied in specifically with astrology is some of the issues astrologers have been having over the past few years, but especially the past year with payment processors. Um, I don't want to mention the name necessarily, but there's one payment processor that's been closing astrologers' accounts. Really? Um, don't if, say PayPal. It's not PayPal, luckily, okay. um, but it's one of the other big ones. And um, yeah, just closing their accounts if they're doing anything that's against, not against the terms of service, but that includes like astrology or magic or this whole other host of divination and other things. Wow. And that's an area where Bitcoin could be relevant, where, for example, tying back into our earlier conversation, if you saw major pushback against astrology and astrologers having problems being able to accept payment through payment processors and currencies, where Bitcoin would be the only natural alternative. Well, not necessarily Bitcoin, but or um, some like yeah, oh, like with yeah. what just got integrated on Twitter. I don't know if you're aware of it yet, but no. um, Jack Mahler has integrated the Strike app t with Twitter. It's part of the El Salvador story. Strike or Stripe? Strike. Strike. Okay. Strike. And so it's basically built on the Lightning Network, which is Bitcoin. And so you don't need Bitcoin to use it. Mm. Um, like if you go on my Twitter right now, you can send me any amount of money instantly and for free through my Twitter account. Nice. Um, so it's, it's, it's brilliant and you don't need Bitcoin. You're just using the Bitcoin network mm. as the medium of exchange for any currency, basically. Like you don't need to know what's going on in the back end. It's the easiest thing in the world to use. So there's that, mm. right? That, that exists, but also, excuse me, this kombucha, that was very unprofessional. That's really good. Thank you for bringing this today. You yeah. were the one that got me into June kombucha several years ago at our first, at our. I was making it. You were making, yeah, it was the best. Yeah. It's still actually the best I've ever tasted. Like, I got into the blue bottle June kombucha that's now sold. Yeah, and, it's all right. I like that. I drink a lot of that. I, that I've been like meaning to reach out to them for like a sponsorship or something, uh, you know, see what what can happen. But I meant to thank you for that. Yeah. Of and you brought some kombuchas as a nice gift. I love today. this one. Yeah, this show is brought to you by Alive GT's kombucha <laughs> and also Liquid Death. They nice. sponsor a lot of podcasts. Um, yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that and unstoppable domains. So like basically domains, like you get chrisbrennan.bitcoin or chrisbrennan.eth or whatever. You just okay. like buy that domain and it acts as an address. Mm. So you just like give that to your clients okay. and they can send you whatever. It doesn't have to be Bitcoin. Like, okay. Um, 
What about is, like NFTs? How could that be relevant theoretically in the future for astrologers specifically? Yeah, I've thought about this a lot. Um, could I like sell my birth chart as an NFT? Yeah, yeah. Really? Actually, Jack uh, Dorsey sold his first tweet hmm. on Twitter for like twenty million dollars, or I don't know exactly what it was, but it was absurd. Yeah, I've been seeing some people, like famous meme people, like selling their memes and stories about that, and that's been really interesting and impressive. Yeah, like uh, overly attached ex-girlfriend or whatever selling her meme for like sixty thousand dollars or something crazy like that yeah, yeah. i mean it's a, it's a it's a wild space that's very nascent and trying to find itself i'm not super involved but like there's a um there's a lovely podcast with tim ferris and naval ravikant um actually tim has been very much getting pushed into the crypto world i love watching it because he's resistant okay in a way like right. he likes crypto but he doesn't know much about it but like his buddy naval and there's a few others like keep kind of like pulling him into it. Hmm. And yeah, they were talking about NFTs because there was a huge uh, conference in New York City like a couple of weeks ago okay. um, around NFTs. And the use case around them that Tim was using is creating kind of like with our Patreons, like you can create like different tiers. So let's just, for example, like you have Chris's uh, bronze version NFT, which is your natal chart that you're selling to people yeah i'm a little worried about this idea because it's almost like the idea of like selling your soul if you like sold <laughs> you, don't want to. you don't want to do that maybe just a picture of you doing your first podcast or something you know? right but there's a bronze edition say there's ten thousand of those there's a silver edition there's five thousand of those and there's the gold edition which is a thousand of or something and they're all at a different price mm -hmm. whether you're pricing them in ethereum or solana like you can do nft work on many different chains okay <clears throat> but each one of those nfts if you hold them give you different access just like our patreon does okay Right. So like if you hold the gold one, like you get to go on Chris's podcast at least once in your lifetime, mm. plus get a copy of his book and, you know, his course or whatever. Right. But the bronze edition, you just get to have the casual astrology podcast and, you know, whatever else you okay. might, you might think of. Um, and you, again, like you can program things into them. So like when it comes to conferences, you know, like certain meetups or like permissions that you could give to certain NFT holders. Okay. And then the way it works in the space is like, if you hold a particular NFT, like you get like airdropped other NFTs or like other, other incentives that are there. None of it at the moment is that attractive to me because it's like all around gaming and, right. and just like pixelated art. That's not interesting to me. But when it comes to music and like this idea, when I heard Tim and Naval talking about it, it started to make sense. And I'm like, yeah, I I find Patreon to be very clunky. Mm. Most of my patrons don't like it either. Like it's not a great interface for it's it does what it does, but like it could be better. And I think that as this technology improves, that the NFT will be helpful. Okay. And like creating communities basically, community tokens even that that would be exchanged within, you know, our little our own little metaverse. Yeah, you know? just in terms of, of having something that's not replicatable that somebody could hold on to and that in a public network is like documented as belonging to them. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I could see how that could be interesting. Okay. Um, well, it'll be interesting to see the applications of that astrology in the future as people start to think about maybe even listening to this and thinking about how that might be applied in ways that are innovative and new and, and kind of useful. If anybody does know have some great ideas about implementing. Where did I look? The NFT stuff that, that we're talking about. Like, I'm interested. Like, I don't know where to start. Mm. You know, I, I know how to navigate the space, but like, I don't know really where to start. Right. With that, but there's definitely something to it. There's there's a way to navigate that um, for sure. And you know, with Uranus traveling with the North Node 
all of 2022, like getting closer and closer. I think it's exact in July. I mean, this, this space is so fast, Chris. Like it's just really, 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 really fast. And I think that by the time you and I see each other next, I mean, it'll probably be in the metaverse, my friend. Yeah, I guess that's true. That's a, that's a little uh, ending on a sad note, but that's a good point. So you're going to go back to the UK after this? Yeah. Okay. Not after this podcast. No, but at some, some point you got some work to do. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I know you have to go at some point, and I said I would keep us to two hours, and somehow we're miraculously- Have we been talking for two hours? We have been talking for two hours. We're about to go over that time. Oh, dear. I would keep talking. I would keep going, but I know you have stuff to do. Yeah. But hopefully we can do this again someday. And I would maybe love to. You're, you're right in the metaverse at some point. Well, let's get you on my show before the metaverse. Okay. I got to get you on like Second Life or something like that. Very retro. I mean, it's funny how retro that is at this point. Something from 2005, but that was like a long time ago now. Yeah. And how I, I mean, I heard of it, but I don't know much about it and how okay. similar that it is to what's being. Yeah. And I don't, it's been like 10 or 15 years. I don't even know if it's still a, a thing at all. I don't think it necessarily is, which is weird because now is the perfect time where something like that would be successful and popular. That's the entire idea of what the metaverse is about to be. And the VR, I'm going to do a podcast with Kent by soon. Actually, it's funny that we talked about all of this because I'm going to go do a deeper dive into VR and some of the related things, virtual reality with Kent by from the Voices of VR podcast here probably next month. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with his work? A little bit from the early days. Okay. Like I remember, yeah, early day stuff. Yeah. Well, that's a whole, that's part of the intersection with the metaverse is the need for the the equipment and that, yeah. that part of things. Big time. Yeah. All right. Um, what are you going to be doing next in terms of your work? What's your website and where can fi people find out more information about you? Yeah. So holestoheavens.com is my site. It's also the name of my podcast. Um, so you can just find it that way. I have been kind of similar to you. It's funny how we, you've been doing the systematic journey through all the planets. I've been doing the same since 2021 started Nice. and I'm calling it constellating psyche. So we're just going through each one and kind of exploring the cosmos, the mythos and the psyche of each planet. We're on Chiron this month. So, nice. you know, you share a birthday with Chiron, you don't talk about him enough. That's true. November 1st, uh, Chiron's 1977. Chiron's yeah. actually a little older than me. I'm 84. True. So, yeah. True, true, true. Uh, so that's what I'm up to, trying to write this book for the Wooden Book series. Um, if no one is familiar with the Wooden Book series, I highly recommend it. They're incredible. And what else am I doing? I live in the Shire, Chris. I keep life simple. That's amazing. Um, yeah, yeah, that is the opposite of the metaverse. I, I'm, I'm not going to move into the metaverse. Really? That's so funny because you're so into the digital, like the Bitcoin and other stuff that you, yeah. you have that resistance to the ultimate, like, you know, endpoint of some of that. Yeah. Yeah. I never got into gaming in that way. Okay. You know what I mean? So, I mean, who knows? I, I think it could be fun. Like when it like truly is indistinguishable from us, like if we were in the metaverse right now and it looked like I was with you, Chris, and you didn't look like a little Lego man. Right. I'd be... Yeah, like this. Yeah, I just want to say, like, okay, so I hope, hopefully, people can see this um, picture. So this is a picture of like me doing a consultation circa 2006. Oh no way! In, Which one are you? In Second Life, I'm the one, the blonde one with the hair, because I used to have hair and be blonde. What? Other oh. guy was a client, and on why aren't you looking at each other? Well, because we're looking at, um, you can't see it, but on the wall, I had put his birth chart. Oh. So we're both like sitting there, those listening to the audio version, you're, there's like two 
digital characters in a virtual world that are sitting sort of cross-legged on the floor, and they're both looking at a chart okay. which is projected on the wall. And, you You've know, already done it. What's funny, yeah, it's like, it was like doing this like a while ago. What's funny is it was before Second Life even had voice integration, so we're like typing in like a chat to each other of the entire consultation, which was, I have to say, not super easy or comfortable. But you know, as new technologies go, there's always stuff like that that is like very rough early on. But yeah. you can sort of see where it's going, and that that might be where all of this this talk is going. So I hope you're you're prepared for that someday, my friend. To do the, the vir virtual reality consultation. I mean, I embrace themes. I, I, oh, sorry. I just, uh, yeah, I like it here. Okay. I like it here. I, I mean, mean, Ready Player One, for example, like it's a great like illustration of what we're talking about. If yeah. someone's familiar of the downside. Yeah, of just you know, like the potential of this, and I, I you know, that's not a future I want to live in necessarily. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a dystopian version. I guess there's just also you know, last year when we we're all locked down. One of the things that happened that came up during that year was like Zoom and just the importance of Zoom in order to allow people to have human interactions online yeah. and, and to maintain those even when separated, sometimes forcefully, you know, from being in person and not having the ability to do that. And there's something about having that human connection with people and connecting with people that's important and can transcend physical, you know, being in a physical room, even though this is optimal. And that's one of the reasons why we did this because I always jump on the chance anytime somebody's in town to like talk in person because that's a much more genuine, you know, exchange, not having that microsecond of a delay through Zoom. Right. But, you know, if you can't have that, you know, sometimes it's still nice to try to replicate that as best you can. And that's why that might be might be the future. Oh, it is. Okay. I mean it's, I mean I think it's I think it's a huge part of it. Yeah. Um we'll see. Okay. It's always good to see you, Chris. Yeah, you too. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, I guess that's it for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you again next time. Bye. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, thanks to the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Morgan McKinsey, and Kristen Otero. If you like the work that I'm doing here on the podcast and you would like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. And in exchange, you'll get access to bonus content such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the month ahead forecast each month, access to a private monthly auspicious elections report that we put out each month, access to exclusive episodes that are only available for patrons, or you can also get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. The main software we use here on the podcast to look at astrological charts is called SolarFire for Windows, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we use a similar set of software by the same programming team called AstroGold for Mac OS, which is available from astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount on that as well. If you would like to learn more about the approach to astrology that I outline on the podcast, then you should check out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune 
where I traced the origins of Western astrology and reconstructed the original system that was developed about 2,000 years ago. And in this book, I outline basic concepts, but also take you into intermediate and advanced techniques for reading a birth chart, including some timing techniques. So you can find out more about the book at hellenisticastrology.com book. The book pairs very well with my online course on ancient astrology called the Hellenistic Astrology Course, which has over 100 hours of video lectures where I go into detail about teaching you how to read a birth chart and showing hundreds of example charts in order to really demonstrate how the techniques work in practice. So find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com. And finally, special thanks to our sponsors, including the Mountain Astrologer magazine, which is available at mountainastrologer.com, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, and the AstroGold Astrology app, which is available for iPhone and Android. You can find out more information about that at astrogold.io.